Attention, Retronauts listeners. Do not skip this very important announcement. This Sunday, October 18th, from 5 to 7 p.m., we'll be running out the Great Arcade Ground Control in Portland for a private Retronauts meetup. And even though we'll be in town to attend the Portland Retro Games Expo, you won't need to be an attendee of that event to come to our party. Oh yeah, and did I mention it's free? That's right. It's free! So if you'd like to join us for two hours of fun in a two-story arcade full of classic games and Retronauts fans, all you need to do is RSVP by October 16th, 2015 by going to tinyurl.com slash retronautsparty. That's tinyurl.com slash retronautsparty. And we'll also have a link to this registration page on our Facebook page, so please join that if you haven't. It'll be pinned to the top until the event happens. Once again, that's Ground Control, control with a K, in Portland, Oregon, on October 18th from 5 to 7 p.m. So please go to tinyurl.com slash retronautsparty and make sure you RSVP by October 16th. And we hope to see you there. And just remember, it's free! This week on Retronauts, we explore the glory and majesty of stabbing things in the head. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Retronauts. I am your host for this one, Bob Mackey, and today's topic is the games of Fumito Ueda. I think I said that okay. Uh, of course, I introduce myself. I'm Bob Mackey. Who else is here today? Who's across from me? It's a me, Jeremy. And who is to stage right from him? <laughs> oh, my God, stage right. <laughs> That's wait, his stage right is you. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, I don't know. Stage I, right is left. Stage right is man. Jeremy. Okay. Stage right is Bob. This or is it's, the, it's the curtain. To my left, <laughs> to your left, uh, I'm Nick Sutner. Awesome. And Nick, who are you? Um, I used to work with Jeremy and you a little bit. As, actually, we used to work with all of you. I was about to yeah, say. Yeah, yes. I, first I was, moved out here. Well, once, well, Michael. Maybe I'll spoil oh. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You, well, you started as an intern at Games Radar. I did. That was like my that. first thing really in the game. Even though I wasn't being paid, it was yeah. still. And then you almost immediately went on to something better, as I recall. Yeah. It was like a, it was a great like month and a half. You uh, went on You went on to uh, one up. I did. Right? And yeah. I didn't was know you worked at uh, Games Radar. Yeah, that, was, yeah. that was a blip. That was like a month and a half, and then to move from one internship to another, but one that I was paid for, thankfully, so I could keep sustaining that for a bit until they gave me a real job. Mm. Uh, and then I worked with Jeremy and, and Bob. Um, and you, you single-handedly brought indie games to 1UP. Uh, sure, I'll take that. Almost single-handedly. <laughs> he brought them in in a little bushel, like, look what they left on our doorstep. I helped a tiny Nick, bit. Nick was the guy who tended to look at indie games and say, oh, there's something really good here, while the rest of the staff was like, that doesn't have a triple A budget. You can't give that a ten out of ten. How can I prestige braid? <laughs> I, I just don't know. It's funny now, actually, historically thinking about like how much crap I got for you got giving, so much crap for giving Braid an A plus. Whereas now, no one would question that for a second. Nick, yeah, name names. Who wronged you? Oh man! Well, <laughs> let me start. Let me pull up this didn't list. wrong Nick? Pull yeah. up the list that I carry I with didn't me. Wrong Nick. I mean, this this all sounds off topic. We're going to be talking a lot about indie stuff today. Yeah. And also, also, Nick, why are you here? Like specifically, I mean, I wanted you on the show for a while. I listened to you you as a podcaster when you were podcasting for One Up. But you are like a kind of uh, Fumito Ueda expert, correct? Uh, I'm well, calling you that. You 
don't have to call yourself that. In a few that. months, I will be able to say I wrote the book and Shadow of the Colossus, Ooh. but uh, <laughs> not, I'm not there yet. Uh, but I am I'm sort of on my evenings and weekend, weekends uh, writing a book for a series called Boss Fight Books, who have done a bunch of rad stuff uh, for like Runner Trigger and Earthbound and some other ones like Splunky and Metal Gear Solid coming up. Uh, sort of a single books on games from different people that are sort of qualified in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if I'm qualified beyond just being a massive fan on it, but I did, um, actually back at 1UP, I did uh, a 1UP FM, our old, one of our old podcasts, a retrospective series on Shadow of the Colossus where we played through it with several of the editors. That's uh, right, and I believe I read an interview that you did with Ueda yeah, from like 2009. Yeah, I did email interview with him too. Um, so I've done some stuff on the game before, and it's just, it's my favorite game ever, and so now I'm writing a book about it. Um, they like my pitch, I guess. Uh, cool. Yeah. So that's why and I'm here, I guess. Awesome. So who else is here? And um, Oh, um, I'm Michael Raparis. I'm a, some old nobody, I think, compared <laughs> to all of that. I'm not sure Sheesh. what I have to contribute. Wait, but, wasn't there uh, a part of the story, uh, your connection to Nick? Or did we already hear that? that? Was the we did. Oh, okay, got it, got yeah, it. Okay, yeah. 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 Sorry, I thought there was more to it. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm Michael Raparis. I have a podcast called Vigigame Apocalypse. You should go listen to it. Sometimes I work at UB Blog. Sometimes? Oh, all the time. Okay. Really. I was wondering. It's like, uh, we, you don't need to come in today, Michael. We well, it's a weekend. Features. I mean, you know, uh, technically there are some some gaps. They do give you time off. But yes. That's always nice. So today we're going to be talking about the two games of Fumito Ueda and what really inspired this topic. I wanted to do it for a while and then E3 happened and then, oh, The Last Guardian now exists. So I was like, okay, we have to do it now. And I think I even I think I even asked Nick before E3 and then after that announcement, I, I went on Twitter and DMs. I'm like, okay, now you have to come on. I think that was like during our press conference yes. shortly thereafter. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, and when I say R, I, I, I work at Sony for my that's right. job. But that's totally separate from my book. Don't for worry. For sure, yeah. <laughs> Nothing he says here represents the thoughts or opinions of um, whoever runs that place now. That goes for uh, both. <laughs> I forgot who does, who's actually the president of Sony. Oh yeah, yeah, Michael. Uh, uh, his his company has nothing to do with this. No, In fact, no, they, no. they will disavow anything he says on <laughs> yes, the podcast. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's all lies. Yeah, don't believe him. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Fumito Ueda. Who is this crazy guy? What is he up to? Where did he come from? He has like a very like his his story. I'm not going to say it's not interesting, but it's very direct. I think there was no like, oh, he worked in obscurity for this tiny developer until he was discovered and pulled out of you know obscurity. To use a word again, but uh, born in 1970, he graduated from the Osaka University of Arts in 1993. And he wanted to be a classical artist, but I guess that didn't work out. And I see in interviews, like, that's something he's still interested in pursuing. Um, and I'm sure he could do it now, but he's sticking with video games. And um, so that didn't work out for him in the 90s, so he ended up joining uh, Kenji Ino's uh, Warp uh, developer, who made uh, things like D, D2, and uh, Enemy Zero. And that was the game that actually Ueda worked on, but not as a designer. He worked as a CG animator. So some of the scenes you see in that in that game are most definitely animated by him. And um, this is like this is a really brief biography. Um, apparently, Super Mario Brothers was the game that uh, influenced him. And he says about this, he says, it was the first game where I felt there was a world beyond what you could see on the screen. Up until then, you just kind of thought it ended with whatever you saw. But with Mario, it felt like the world extended beyond that. And, uh, yeah, so he joined Sony after working on Enemy Zero in 1997, and then he made two games, and that's basically his story. I mean, like, I guess his—I'm going to say it right now, and uh, I'm sure there are some naysayers for Ueda stuff, and I think they're heartless and mean, but um, (laughs) I believe the man is, like, sincerely a genius uh, in terms of art and game design. I'm just going to throw that out there immediately. This is going to be a hyperbolic podcast, at least— on my end. And I'm sure none of you here dislike Ueda or like have I a know. bone to pick Hit or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nick's book is just a takedown. Like <laughs> he's, he's he's actually talentless. He stole this from, uh, let me think. 
behind the music. Fumito Ueda. <laughs> All the drinking, the drugs, the cocaine the benders. <laughs> going, the back lies. To, going back to that Mario quote for a second, that's actually pretty interesting because that's something that I would uh, ascribe to his games as well. There's sort of this whole world of things that are like aren't there and aren't really what you're seeing, and not a lot of other games really. I'd say like most games are pretty much pack all their lore in there, or it's fairly clear that they have like the lore of their world sussed out, and then they choose what to put in the game. Well, but there's always destiny. Oh boy. <laughs> The broom <laughs> just died. I was waiting. For, I, 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 I can't insult Destiny because I don't really know that much about it. So um, please continue. <laughs> well, it's something, I mean, like a, a modern equivalent, I'd say, uh, sort of this is something I actually just ended up writing about because I played a bit. I think something like The Witcher 3 is similar in broad strokes at a surface level of like third-person fantasy game where you ride a ho- horse a lot and fighting monsters. Um, but in that, it's like there is so much nonstop lore, like written and spoken and world-building and everything, whereas way to games, way to games, which will, we'll talk about much more shortly. Um, there's so much there, or you, you think there's so much there that you're not seeing. Uh, and it's sort of been proven conclusively now that there isn't. Like, all the secrets are pretty much known, but you can't yeah. play the games for more than, like, a minute without that sense of, like, mystery and mm. sense of there being something larger to it. And that never really like, goes... I mean, it still hasn't who, gone away who, from who me. Who are these guys who hate babies with horns? Like, <laughs> there are... Yeah, there are just questions that the game never bothers to address. Exactly, mm. yeah. And that's why I love the game. So let's start Let's start by talking about his first game um, that he was basically the, the director of, and that was Ico. Sorry, Ico. This is going to be a problem for me throughout this entire episode. <laughs> I went maybe 10 years saying, Ico, and then I was told it wasn't Ico because there was no one like I mean it was never said in like a trailer or anything mm-hmm. I don't think so okay it is Ico I'm in the same well, boat yeah. did you think it was the game of that song you never actually hear what they say it's always <laughs> yeah yeah no one's ever saying he, he speaks Klonoa language right <laughs> pretty much <laughs> sorry Michael uh, yeah. what were you saying no I, I was just asking did you think it was uh, based on that song Ico yeah, like, from the 80s oh, your yeah, grandma and my yeah. grandma are sitting by the, the fire I know the Bette Midler cover because I'm a very heterosexual man listening to Bette Midler. (laughs) I didn't even know she did a cover. That was on the From a Distance single that my mom had, and uh, I liked that song more because it was more fun. I don't even know what a cover is, Bob. That's how straight I am. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. That's cool. Uh, So this game came out in uh, September 24th, 2001 in the USA, and actually it came out later in Japan. I'm not quite sure why, but that's what happened. So Um, that they could put better stuff in the Japanese version and make Americans envious. I think they're— Like watermelons. There might be watermelons. <laughs> Are there watermelons on the beach in the Japanese version? Or I believe well, that was okay. there's the whole there's the whole second second quest where you can play through and see Yorda's uh, speech translated. Oh, into that's English. right. Yeah, and that is or actually, into Japanese, I guess. That's actually in the HD version, which is great. And I think they added an extra weapon or something. But uh, and then you play the castle upside down, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> right. that didn't happen. It's very difficult. You have to collect all Yorda's body parts. Yo, mm-hmm. boy, yuck. oh, never mind. <laughs> but wear the glasses when you defeat the Dark Queen. You can see Shaft uh-huh, floating exactly. behind her. Yes. So Richard this... Roundtree is right there. <laughs> wow. Man, he should have gotten paid for this. <laughs> so this game was in development for four years, and it was originally intended for the original PlayStation. And I think there are some correlations between the development of this game and The Last Guardian, where I feel like – we'll talk about The Last Guardian later, but I feel like it's the same case where they were working on The Last Guardian for a while for the PS3, and we're like, oh, we're not going to make it. Let's just move it to the new platform. That's just what I'm guessing happened. I, there could be a man, many stories we will never know, but it seems it could be likely. I don't know. What do you guys think about that well, in terms gonna, of The Last Guardian? I was actually going to back it up a little bit of a step further on, on Eco. And I oh, think go for it, yeah. I was going to say, like, his inspirations were pretty interesting. I mean, both the way it happened where he basically made a three-minute-long CG pitch of the concept of, like— 
you know, uh, of of Ico or Ico uh, and Yorda as well, like escaping from the castle. Um, but also, I guess the the narrative concept you wanted to make, like he wanted to make a story about a taller girl and a shorter shorter boy, hmm. uh, which is interesting because that actually holds true for the final game, and it does add an he interesting must be visual a Tom dynamic. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but even that's a pretty interesting sort of like jumping off point for uh, sort of a, you know, character pairing. And then you also wanted to make a game uh, about like AI and interacting with AI and interacting with it in a more tactile way than I think had been done before. And actually like you're essentially dragging someone around by their hand. Um, but there's, I mean, the, that game is basically about the, those interactions uh, with Yorda, um, both narratively and mechanically. Um, so I think maybe that's, I guess, how I see it. A bit different kicking off in that there was all about sort of his initial concept that got him really into the industry in, in the way we know him now, uh, whereas I'm guessing Last Guardian was sort of building off of a lot of what he had from Eco oh, and sure. Shadow um, and sort of taking that to the mythological level. And, like, one of my questions when researching this game was things I didn't didn't really look up before, didn't remember. It's just like, okay, this guy is hired at Sony. How does he get his own game, like, immediately or maybe a, a year or two in or whatever? But apparently it was really easy. Like, the team he was with were people he went to university with, and the pitch was great, and Sony was just like, we trust you. So th- that's just an amazing story, like, of talent being recognized. I know it happens, you know, sometimes, but it feels like that's – people usually have to struggle for a while, but he didn't really have to do that. And I, I'm sure working on Enemy Zero wasn't fun, as he said in interviews and stuff like that. But yeah, like he just he made it happen. And um, so we're we're doing a uh, PlayStation podcast next, PlayStation retrospective. <clears throat> and in the process of that, I, I looked through first party PlayStation releases for Sony, and was reminded of the fact that in the PlayStation era, Sony was just like, we will green light anything. <laughs> Give us a weird idea and we're going to make it into a video game. I mean, we got some cool stuff over here, but in Japan it was serious. Just, just, just like the wall was full of stuck stuff that people were trying to see if, would, if it would stick. I guess uh, he was there fortunate. Were, there were dozens yeah. and dozens of games. <clears throat> and like I, I feel like Sony really, in the, in the PlayStation era, tried to sort of define itself and distinguish itself by saying we are willing to be experimental, we're willing to be weird, we're willing to do stuff like Baby Universe and then build that into our console later on. Um, and Eco was, you know, sort of the beneficiary of that. It was, yeah, you're it was, right. It was basically mm. the right place at the right time, the right company willing to say, you know what, okay, give it a try. We're, we're going to make this game that no one else has ever seen and hopefully it'll be good. I'm sure that before the indie movement took off, there were many people like him that just couldn't get a game approved, you know. I mean, Sony created Kuma Uta, the That's game right. <laughs> where you have a polar bear that you train to be an Enka singer. So, so this isn't too outlandish. This is pretty normal <laughs> yeah. for first-party PlayStation content. Well, especially looking, though, at uh, just any sort of, like, disc-based content now. I mean, trying to sell a game as, like, here's a, you know, four-hour-long game with, like, no other modes or on or leaderboards or anything, and there's not even a UI, and there's very little story. Like, even at face value, like, it's that's something that just doesn't really exist anymore in that sort of AAA production sense as a retail game. Now it's all either indie games or something like a Hellblade that's sort of in between. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, before we talk about the game itself, uh, Nick talked about the the AI component, but apparently uh, there are three key notions explicitly outlined by Ueda about like what the the kind of the mission statement of the game is, and that was to make a game that would be different from others in, in the genre, so like a, just a different kind of action adventure game, I guess, uh, a game that would feature an aesthetic style that would be consistently artistic, which he did. 
and one that would play out in an imaginary yet realistic setting. And I, I think I think the AI should be a big component of that because I feel like they stumbled upon it like years before anyone really cared about it. Like I remember Alex in Half-Life Episode 1 was like, oh, it's this character that you'll care about. It's like, well, yeah, I did that five years ago and it was kind of a better experience, you know, so. And I've been trying to think about uh, that sort of like, was there another AI companion pre-Eco that was sort of relevant historically like that? I mean, there were- Does there... Pack and Pal count? Wow, wow. <laughs> you know, that's that a is. deep cut. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Daikatana, I guess, well, for, for sidekicks you hated. I will name one, <laughs> and it is this game's most biggest, hugest influence that's out of this world where you are with Buddy, and um, there is a power dynamic there where you're, you're rescuing him sometimes, he's rescuing you sometimes, and it's kind of echoed in Ico a bit. But without that game, and he has even listed this as one of his influence, I don't think eco would exist because it's very much, you know, that screen-by-screen screen approach where sometimes there are new mechanics that will only be used in one puzzle, and uh, it's the same alien world with um, a made-up language and no real explanation of what's happening outside of the intro. Like, there are real strong correlations between Out of This World slash Another World and eco that I really saw this time, mm-hmm. like, for sure. I don't know if you guys saw the same thing uh, upon recent replays or just revisiting it. I only played that recently, actually, on the, the recent, like, PS4 oh, release, so cool. that was interesting for me to sort of see it the other way around. Like, okay. Oh, this feels very much like Eco. It makes a lot. Mm. That makes sense. So uh, I want to know from you guys, uh, what what was up with you at the time of, like, uh, sorry, Eco's release? Because for me, it was like every magazine was gushing about this game, and I was, like, becoming an adult, and I was like, this is the discerning gamer's game. It's so artistic and beautiful, and everyone loved it. I loved it. And, in fact, uh, Eco was my first published game review in a, in a guy named Jeremy Parrish's uh, fanzine. I don't know what happened to him. And because of that, it led me down the the, I think he died. the magical road of games journalism, which I'm still uh, walking these days. But yeah, that's my connection is extremely personal. I love this game so much; it made me want to write game reviews. And then we see people like uh, from software's Hidetaka Miyazaki, Dark Souls director, Bloodborne director. He quit his job because of Eco and was like, "Fuck this! I'm making video games because Eco is awesome. Like it inspired so many people." We'll talk about more influences later. But first, I want to know where everyone was, what you thought of it, were you on board, were you wary, like what was going on. Um, Michael? Well, I mean, it came out when I was just starting to write reviews uh, at the newspaper I was working at. And so to, to get this in my hands, like, you know, getting game deliveries from Sony was really cool. Getting this was amazing. And I mean, it it is sort of really an unconventional game, like going back and playing it now. You have things like the camera is, is sort of detached. You're, you're sort of panning it around yeah, the room. Yeah, it's kind of like on a tripod almost. Yeah. yeah. And it, it kind of uh, promotes a, a sense of like you're watching the characters do this stuff. You're not you, – even though you're controlling them directly, they're still sort of their own creatures. And I mean Eco uh, himself has this – very weird, like it, almost procedural-looking animation, where it's like yeah. you can tell this wasn't motion captured. There's sort of a puppet-like quality to it, but at the same time, like the sounds that are coming through is feet slapping on the stone. It's it's very. I mean, it has a presence. So to to be able to play that on PS2, and I think this was this was 2001, right? So oh, yeah, we were getting sure. Silent Hill 2, GTA 3. I mean, this was a great time to be. Uh, a Sony gamer, but um, to get this and like, wow, this is like, this is one of those art games that people are talking <laughs> about. Like, and and, and it, it was really, and you know, I, I was plugged into the conversation online. I knew that people were saying like, oh, this is a this princess that you'll actually care about, and uh, you, you have to take care of her, and you'll develop this bond, and then like playing it, like, yeah, I I totally feel this. This is, a, and of course, I think that's what everybody 
felt like that that weird deep connection to Yorda, even though you you don't communicate with her at all. So, Nick, where were you? Were, were you on board uh, the, the Eco Train as uh, early as 2001? Yeah, I was, I was fully on board. I mean, I, I definitely played it right when it came out. I wasn't writing about games yet or anything. I wasn't uh, quite far as far along that path as you guys. Um, I, my information on it, I think it was, I want to say it was on the cover of, a, of an OPM, official PlayStation magazine. Mm. Um, it was definitely on a demo disc as I well. I think I might have played the demo first yeah. now that you mentioned it. Yeah. That was my first exposure. Um, and yeah, it just it, it didn't feel like anything else. The atmosphere was totally different. It made me care about characters in a way that I uh, really hadn't before. Um, I've talked uh, sort of uh, in the past and on our PlayStation podcast and elsewhere about how I play games really in character. Like, Pretty much every game I play, I sort of put myself in the character's shoes. Like my my example, my go-to example is in Red Dead Redemption, I walk in the towns. I don't run because why would he run like John Marston wouldn't run? There's no, like, motivation within the game. So I'm sort of ridiculous, and I'll, like, tip my hat to everybody I meet. Like, I really <laughs> enjoy putting myself. Like, I can't not do be you, immersed. Do you go I, to GTA Online and be, like, a bus driver or whatever? Oh, and, like, man. let people off? That would be great. <laughs> I should do that. Um, but I think I think Eco may have been the start of that a little bit, that it was so easy to connect to, like, the even though it was very mysterious, the plight of this boy, you're like, oh, I'm dumped here for reasons I don't entirely understand in this castle. I need to escape. Very shortly, you meet Yorda, and really, you sort of take your hand and you're like, we're going to get you out of here. And that's really the sort of linchpin of the whole game and then making you care through the gameplay interaction, not just through the story. Like, that was also something new, like world building and relationship building and, you know, like narrative design around gameplay uh, where you were experiencing, like, the breadth of this world and a lot of the story just by connecting with Yorda along the way and learning the castle and everything. It wasn't just about, like, presenting a cutscene to you. Yeah, you know, there was some of that. But. We'll get to this later, a bit more uh, later, but I feel like the the strengths of his games is that they communicate story through the language of games. It's not just we're going to cut away to a pre-rendered thing or something right. someone else wrote. It's like your actions are what is telling the story, and you, the player, are the only person who can do those actions. It's not being done for you by, like, voice actors or motion capture actors or whatever like that. Uh, Jeremy, I know you've at least drawn uh, eco fan art before. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you played it, right? I, I think you haven't played Shadow from from talking to you. Right. So, so yeah, um, where was I on the eco train? I was standing at the station waving a kerchief as the train left, <laughs> cheering everyone on. I, I bought the game. I was well aware of it because of my relationship with the gaming intelligence agency. And, you know, they were over the moon about oh, it. Oh, I'm sure that's, that was one of my biggest influences. Yeah, wanting and it, yeah. so it looked really interesting to me. But, you know, the thing about writing about video games is that unless you're writing about a video game, it's very difficult to justify playing it. And since I had some dude named Bob writing about it from uh, that, that fanzine, <laughs> I, I ended up pawing this garbage off on I think Bob. He, I think he's dead too. I ended up not, not playing it for a while. Um, mm. It was one of those games that 
once I got a launch PS3 with backward compatibility, I sat down and played a bunch of PS2 games I had missed, like Metal Gear Solid 3, and Eco was one of them. Oh, wow. I thought, for some reason, I thought you were on the Metal Gear Solid 3 thing immediately. Uh, I was I was into the idea, but okay. I didn't actually play it until... I still haven't played it. ...several years later. You're missing, <laughs> you're missing out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was just one of those like, oh, I want to play this. Oh, well, I don't have time. Well, when you bring so, up Metal Gear, I'm thinking again like this was a really uh, jam-packed year for the, for the PS2. Like, do you feel like it kind of Eco kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit? I, th- I, I think it was like the first game of the wave, so that could be possible. I'm sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I don't think it was really affected one way or the other because it it was always the kind of game that was going to be you know a sleeper hit at best it was never going to be blockbuster conquer the world like oh my god i can't wait to see the e3 trailer for this again um you know it's just not that kind of game the fact that last guardian has that kind of demand behind it is remarkable and great well and shadow really was the one I mean, we'll get to shadow of the colossus but that's really the one that bridged it because shadow shadow was a, like a commercial hit as well especially in the us which was weird whereas eco like did well enough to sort of justify a semi sequel of sorts but mm. uh, shadow really is what i think made it like okay now they're onto something in For almost sure, like yeah. a mainstream right. way I think so, I also made the comparison that Eco is a lot like uh, a 3D Prince of Persia. Like when the only oh, yeah. exemplar of that was Prince of Persia 3D uh, for Dreamcast, but uh, it was it was sort of like this. This is like the spirit of the original game, where you only fight occasionally, and most of it's about puzzle solving. I, I've seen a way to say that he played a bunch of Prince of Persia on Game Boy too. So oh, that was that's definitely so. an influence. <laughs> yeah, like I, I want to describe this game, and I don't want to dismiss it, but it feels like the sum of other parts, but presented in a way we hadn't seen before. I mean, and there's nothing have, wrong with yeah, that. of I course, mean, yeah. You can I, be innovative, or you can be iterative, and if you're going to be iterative, doing it doing it in an interesting way. Um, is absolutely a valid form of creative expression. I, I was, it's how things get better. Hmm. People revisit ideas and expand on them and explore them and develop them. Well, Eco has been revisited that. many times, oh, yeah. but not by Ueda. <laughs> no. Yeah. Sorry, not Nick, yet. I'm just going to say I think that character interaction, though, was pretty innovative, I would that say. That was yes. the one like unique thing about it. That and just the uh, the way the game looked. Like I don't remember ever seeing bloom lighting or knowing what bloom lighting was before mm-hmm. Eco. I mean, did anyone, had anyone ever heard that term or – seen it in a game. Mm. I just like playing it against like no game looks like this still. I mean, I remember thinking like this is uh, a showcase for the PS2's ability to do light and shadow, for to sure, do yeah. uh, fog effects, especially like those monsters were, I think unlike anything else except for maybe in Shadow of the Colossus, the kind of creepy, shadowy smoke monsters. Like for a game that's really about, you know, minimalism and subtractive design uh, and a very sort of simple aesthetic, it also was like sort of a technical juggernaut <laughs> in some ways. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like lighting and espe- I mean, especially Shadow. Right, but in like, very subtle ways. It yeah. wasn't about flash and about like, wow, can you believe like this cool FMV? It was very much about atmospheric details and little things that you may not have noticed unless you were really paying attention and unless you were really watching for them that just make the world more immersive and more more satisfying. It reminded me aesthetically a lot of Yasumi Matsuno's games. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Vagrant Story, Final I Fantasy Tactics. Mm. Um, and, you know, his art director that, that he works with a lot, uh, Hiroshi... Uh, Minaguchi, I think, um, like kind of works in that sort of muted palette, like a very finite selection of colors so that within that sort of limitation, 
you get greater, like a, a more more detail. Um, it's not as much about like bright colors and a broad palette, but about like taking these limitations and really um, creating a sense of complexity and, and place yeah. and realism about it. And you know, you, you saw a lot of games this past generation. Um, go for the desaturated look that you saw in Eco, but they didn't have the the really sharp art direction and the the sense of like just a kind of creative drive that that made Eco so Im- impressive. And I think your comment on realism, like because it looks like a, a real place that could exist on Earth, right outside of like the shadow monsters, like it's not super colorful, it's not very fantastical in a very video gamey way. It's like a castle made of bricks and staircases and torches. It's a very, it's and, a very dull looking game right. if you just take a glance at it. But, yeah, but but the the appeal is what happens when you watch it in motion and when when you see all the systems in place and you see Eco and Yorda sort of navigating through the world. And it makes it a bit, I think, easier to get immersed because it's not just like, oh, I'm in this fantasy adventure that's a video game or a story. It's like, oh, I can can feel like I'm a little bit in this place because of how grounded it feels. And even things like the character animations as well, which Mike talked about, Mm -hmm. like, you know, very subtle and almost like little like skitterish and but it feels like you're a boy right I mean he moves with sort of this like like wild like, uh, like arms flailing yeah, yeah, yeah like, it's yeah. almost like as if you're a kid before you like realize you can like get hurt, hurt horribly all the time <laughs> you can just like leap around the world and you'll usually be fine yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. at the same time it doesn't it doesn't strive to be truly realistic it doesn't right. it isn't shackled by like necessarily you know logic or common sense like why are there sofas all over this castle save, save, so save sofas stone yeah. sofas yeah. Yeah. Couches. Yes, it's it's very strange. Like, Why doesn't IKEA make one of those? Like, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be made of stone, but the same pattern. Where it's like a snapshot of your that's, life. That's the only, <laughs> it's the die, only furniture. It's very strange. But, you know, whatever. And you just that, you accept it. And that actually inspired the uh, the couches, I believe, or little benches around the world of uh, Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Oh, you're you right. Play that. Yeah, that's wow. a great game. Um, so I want to talk about the individual parts in a second, but I do want to contextualize uh, Eco because it's very easy to take it for granted. And we've been talking about that on Retronauts this season, like, oh, yeah, Super Mario World, that's a great game. Who cares? Like, I played it. But we, when we talk about it, we realize why it's great and why we should care. With Eco, I want to put this game in the context of what was happening in 2001. And as Nick was mentioning earlier, this game did not tell things through the, did not tell its story through the language of cinema, which was a rarity. Because this was the time when everyone, thanks to the DVD format, was getting really self-indulgent. I mean, they were getting self-indulgent with CD-ROMs, but now we're having things like... Um, a Zeno saga the next year would be like, here are cutscenes so long, there's a save point. And like Metal Gear Solid 2, you can easily play for 45 minutes without actually moving Snake. You can go through all the Coda conversations, things like that. Like, they were really fascinated, and by they I mean other directors, in using the language of cinema and the tools that they had to just put as much story as possible in the game. But this game stood in stark contrast to that. There is, I mean... Is there any, like, there, there's barely any spoken dialogue at all. And what is there is not super informative, you know. We don't know what the premise, we, we kind of know what the premise is. We don't know why Eco is entombed in that castle. We don't know what where the queen came from, who was the villain of this game. We don't know, like, a lot of things. A lot of things you put together based on context clues and things like that, but there is still so much mystery. And this was a time when games did not want to be mysterious. They were going to be like, here's a 50-minute conversation about everything you want to know in this story. I mean... Like, did that strike you as just completely strange, this this minimalistic game in in this time when games were not minimalistic? They were just 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 bloated with story for the most part, I think. I mean, it, it wasn't something completely unseen. It, it wasn't like, oh, this is a revolution in game design. It was more of a return to 
yeah. um, uh, an older time. I mean, Super Metroid is sort of the 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 marquee title. I can for, see that. Yeah. For storytelling through gameplay through world design. I mean, it gives you the setup at the beginning and then. That's it. That's all the dialogue you see. I think and we just maybe hadn't seen it in a modern right, yeah, 3D. Yeah. But but people forgot about that. I mean, even Metroid Prime, is, which came out the next year, is Super Metroid but with databases. Right, yeah. It's so many databases. <laughs> maybe too many. <laughs> it just it just seemed like every, anyone would expect a, a PS2 game to be like this, this technical – I mean, it was technical Marvel. But in terms of story, like it's going to tell a story in this new way you'll never see before. And it kind of does but not in the way I think people were expecting. And I saw a lot of pushback – towards that at the time where it just like people wanted cutscenes back then it's hard to believe now but people wanted to watch cutscenes in 2001 or at least they were kidding themselves into thinking they wanted to watch them but well, well now a lot of what they, players respond to in, in these modern times of ours uh, with games um, like I mean not only Dark Souls but things more about character connection like The Last of Us uh, can be traced back really to Eco as well oh, for like sure, yeah. finding mm-hmm. like that character interaction was something that maybe at the time was easy to sort of take for granted how different that was and how much it would influence things going forward I think that the, we want cutscenes also stemmed out of a fixation on like what's new and like this is what makes a modern video game. It doesn't yeah. check off this box. That's Why what I was kind of aiming for. That yeah. box? I mean, Ego does have cutscenes, but I mean, they all kind of have that feeling of being in engine. Like they don't look different from the rest of the game. So maybe there's there was a certain amount of. Uh, I want to see something beautiful and pre-rendered. That's my reward for finishing this part of the gameplay. Um, and, you know, Half-Life, I think, the first Half-Life went a long way toward creating that sort of vibe in 1998. Um, there was dialogue, obviously, and people right. were telling you things and giving you mission objectives. But it didn't really explain that much. Like, you eventually found out that the aliens came from a planet called Zen. But no one really said, like, here's what the master scheme is. Here's the whole plan, and here's what we're doing on Earth. Mwahaha. It was more like these different events unfolded and you realized, oh, the the American soldiers want to kill me and they're trying to clean up and I'm right. inconvenient. And, you know, you were constantly reacting to these changes in the environment and the, the changing sides and uh, situations. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't some completely unheard of concept, but it was definitely done in a, in a very um, – in a very striking and uh, well-defined – uh, kind of way. And I, th- I think another thing is that it, it didn't, by, even by the end of the game, it didn't answer most of the questions. You learned a little more. You sort of learned what the shadow creatures are. You learned what the queen was trying to do. I don't know how sensitive you guys are to spoilers. No, no, it's cool. Yeah, parts, we should probably mention there There might be some spoilers in this podcast. 14 years, we're cool. Yeah, yeah. so don't get mad. Play, I mean, just play the game. Stop yeah. this and play the games now if you haven't. It'll cost you like 15 bucks probably. And, and it's like five hours long. Yeah. You've, you've had a decade and a half to do it, though, so come on. <laughs> but that's the thing is they still have not – like these questions are still unanswered. Uh, and, and that I think is a little bit uh, – to me is a little bit unique as well. Like you, there's only so much you can sort of dig out of that and a lot of it you just have to ascribe meaning or not. Yeah, yeah. And this time I was playing it with an analytical Dark Souls-y eye and it was still like I don't know why this is happening but I'm just going to think about it. It will never be answered but my interpretation will be just as good as anyone else's. Because I'm an English major. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, I want to talk about Yorda because um, going into this game again, I played it a bunch of times. Going into this game with a 2015 mindset, I'm like, I, you know, it's a PS2 game and it's kind of, you know, technically primitive or whatever. This were you is not playing gonna... the original or were you playing the PS3? Uh, PS3 version. version. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So going into it, I was a little cynical. Not not super cynical, but like, eh, th- how could this game work its magic on me again? But it did, and it's all because of Yorda. 
because uh, again, she's kind of helpless, and you and you kind of help her along the way because a lot of this game is finding a way for her to get to the thing that you can get to, like naturally, because only she can open up these special doors. So most of the game is broken up into these rooms, and all all the goal is just like getting her to those doors with you in some way. And one of the best things about this game, and it's a very understated, is how she slowly becomes more and more able, like. She will start pulling herself up. She'll start making the jumps herself, and it all culminates into uh, this very great par- sorry, this very great parallel in which um, there's a point in the game, one of the few cutscenes in the game, where you are separated from her, and she has to catch you with a jump, and that is like it just ties it together so naturally. And I actually played this with the um, the subtitles on for the first time. I never you know played it that way in my life for some reason, and uh, one of the few bits of language I think adds a lot or dialogue rather is her saying thank you as you fall it's just like that little tiny expression that I never heard before never understood before just like meant so much because like even if she didn't make it she was happy that she was able to like have an adventure or whatever and uh yeah I mean how do you guys feel about that relationship in the game I don't know if you played it recently but going back to it after 2001 does it still work on you I mean, I played it just last night, actually, oh, cool. and I was kind of amazed. You you bring up the cynicism thing, and that was very much my attitude when the PS3 uh, Eco Shadow of the Colossus collection came out. I think I reviewed it, and I remember saying something along the lines of, Eco doesn't hold up as well. It's kind of more of a curiosity. The The animation looks really weird. The animation I was just praising earlier in this episode, <laughs> it, it looks weird. It's stiff. Uh, this is clearly an artifact of its time, but it's still worth playing. And then playing it last night, it's like this, this is beautiful. This is all an original creation. How could I have criticized this? A few years ago, when this came out, it, it's almost like the like Ray Harryhausen like stop motion skeletons were like it. It probably looks good and bad at yeah. over certain periods of time, but now it's sort of like is it forever going to look awesome? Yeah, it, like, it yeah. goes it goes from like amazing to hokey to classic amazing. Yeah. Like the birds that you see are like two polygons or whatever, but even yeah. so, they add to those strange like mystical like just weird well, environment. And there's there's all these moody little touches you don't notice, like the fact that the birds are there at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think also part of my beef was the uh, the 3D uh, I want to say Shadow of the Colossus was one of the reasons that I actually is the main reason I bought a 3D TV because wow. seeing that in 3D that is the only game I've ever played it's like this adds so much so much sense of scale and then in Eco it's barely noticeable well I do want to see that in 3D I need yeah. to come to your house Michael and watch yeah. that play out <laughs> you should you should oh, oh, man. I'm, but, I'm going back to your oh, sorry sorry you no, I wanted to, I wanted to go back to Yorta actually, yeah, yeah. and the the hand holding mechanic, like the fact that like it it feels at first like you're saddled with her, like she's a little bit of a pain, but the fact that you know you have to hold her hand, you have to pull along, the fact that it's you choosing mm-hmm. to hold her hand, that I think helps build a bond that it's, you're not being forced to do it. One really subtle thing, and I I noticed this a lot in earlier PS2 games, but I, I don't think it was a design choice people made later, where it's like. The controller is like this metaphorical extension for your body. So in um, in in Eco, the R trigger is hold her hand, and in Shadow, the R trigger is grab. So I feel like that makes it feel even more realistic or like more like natural. But also there are these just like really slight rumbles when you're when you're pulling her along because you can mm-hmm. just feel her footsteps too. And even that little touch is enough to make you connect even more with this character on screen who has like three lines of dialogue and one of them is thank you. And there are those bits when you're pulling her and she kind of, she stumbles because you're pulling too hard. And then you feel kind of bad. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I I felt too connected to her and and Iko is always yanking her and she's like (laughs) being jerked along and I was like, no, be more gentle. Come on, dude. Yeah. It's interesting seeing her as well have sort of a totally different set of animations. They could have just as easily used uh, Iko's animations for a lot of it, but she actually sort of exists in the world in a very different way. Like, you can tell she's very, like, she's, 
t- you know, tentative sort of, but like a little, it gets a little more confident over time, like you were saying, Bob. Right. Things like when she climbs up a ladder, she'll put both hands and feet on each rung before the oh, next God, one. Oh, God, yeah. Waiting for her to climb up a ladder, uh, it doesn't happen much, but you're just like looking at your watch. You know? <laughs> it's like, come on, Yorda. Yeah, uh, and even like the first time, actually the first time you see one of the save save couches, save sofas, that's the first time I noticed in the game where she actually breaks away from you and sort of runs ahead like, oh, something I recognize. Yeah, like, that happens sometimes. Yeah. She does like event- sometimes break free from you and uh, yeah. And this this really gets down to what I, I consider quintessentially good game design, which is when the game gives you hints and suggestions for things to do without you necessarily being conscious of it. So like her running away from you when she sees the couch, like that's telling you this is important and you need to make use of it. But it doesn't beat you over the head about it. It's this natural action that she does. It's something that you really can take for granted because, you know, there is this person you're leading around and, you know, even though you're dragging her most of the time and kind of helping her out, she's still a person. So, of course, she's going to have her own motivations and, you know, her own actions. Um, it's it's really hard to come across a game that that does that, that really makes its, its uh, tutorial elements um, – sort of, I guess you might call it um, diegetic, like mm-hmm. something yeah, that yeah. fits mm. within the context of the world without conspicuously saying, you know, snake, press the R button to breathe <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And everything in Eco is diegetic. Like outside yeah. of, I guess, maybe the the camera sometimes like pointing out an area where you should be paying attention to. Like for instance, when she's being – if you, like, uh, sort of leave her alone in combat or aren't paying attention, the shadow creatures will, like, suck her into the portal, and sometimes the camera will cut away to, like, show you, like, oh, crap, you better get on that yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, it's all told within the... I mean, there's no UI, there's no... And there's not a whole lot of music things. either. I mean, mm-hmm. it, like, music would be a component of the design of the game in Shadow, but it's very, very sparsely used in Eco. I think maybe there's a few, just a few instances of music in the game, but outside of that, all you hear is just, like, the wind blowing through the castle, which sounds great, like, on a, st- on a stereo system, and um, birds chirping, and that's basically it. But I feel like Eco succeeds on, on the same level as a, as the original Tomb Raider in a lot of ways, and that's, that's one of them. I mean, it is very much about navigating environments, solving puzzles, um, figuring out your way through the world, minus the gunplay and everything, but but the two have a very similar spirit, and Tomb Raider also made very, very sparing use of music, so that when you do hear, you know, the oboe kick in, you're mm-hmm. like... Oh yeah, this is important, and you know, eco eco uses that sort of minimalism, that sort of restraint, to great effect. And I, I wish more games did that. Not that I want every game to be yeah. silent, but yeah. but that that sort of understanding of like, if you hold back on these elements that people take for granted, when you make use of them, they mean something. They're not just part of the game. And the music is great too. I recently I forget whose list it was. I recently saw that someone did like a top hundred gaming soundtracks, and it was number one. And I was like, that's a pretty interesting choice, especially because of how all two songs minimal right? it is. Yeah. And there's actually like I think there's quite a few more, but they're just used so sparsely. Yeah, and there's yeah. like I need to look like that up. A whole song, you know, at the ending and the intro cutscene. Oh, Enemy Zero. I could be wrong, but isn't that the game that was it was made so that it could be played by a blind person? It's yeah. It's based on sound. Oh wow. Yeah, I recommend everyone. Uh, I don't recommend anyone play Enemy Zero. Because <laughs> Because <laughs> it is really, really hard, but there are multiple Let's Plays of it online. I, they're worth watching because then you realize, like, I'm glad someone did this because I will never do this in my life. So before we move away from Eco and talk about Shadow, uh, I do want to talk about the one sore spot in this game. And it only gets worse over time for me, and that is the, the combat. Uh, this is the one tiny part of the game where I feel like they were not confident in what they were doing. So they put a very traditionally gamey thing in there without thinking about 
much else other than we need some something to stretch out the game or something to pad out the game. So I, I don't mind doing this a few times, but sometimes these these scenes just go on and on and on, mm. and it's kind of frustrating because you can get trapped in this loop where you pull Yorda out of the black hole that they're sucking her into. You immediately get knocked out. She gets carried away to another hole. You pull her out. As soon as you pull her out, you get knocked out again. So you're just doing this this horrible loop. <laughs> And I wouldn't mind if um, there was a new twist on the battles every time. Like, oh, now you have this at your disposal, or now you have to trick them into doing this. But no, it's just like, we're going to fill this this area with enemies and fight them and then move on. It just feels like a very kind of dumb thing for a very smart game to do. I don't know. This, how does anyone feel about this? Uh, the battles in this it's, game? It's sort of like Devil May Cry's approach, but without the fun combat. <laughs> yeah, just like you have a three-hit combo, and it sucks. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I like that you use the word gamey. It means gamey. When when you have something that is reminiscent conspicuously of a video game, it is kind of foul and distasteful. <laughs> we hate video games here. Uh, Nick, I mean, what do you think about the combat scenes in this game? Um, I, mean, I, I could be being too hard on them, but I feel like this game is so inventive in so many ways. Just throwing the same combat scenario at you maybe six or seven times yeah, just I, doesn't do it for me. I think at worst, I think at the time, it can feel like filler. I never really had too much of a problem with the actual mechanics. If anything, I think it's a bit overly easy for a lot of the time. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think going back, though, like I was trying, I was, you know, originally replaying it, I was trying to be a little more open-minded. And, well, not, not to say that that wasn't before, but... Um, I think it actually, though, I think the the nice upside of it is that it ad- ends up breaking up, like, the pacing of the game a bit, where it's yeah, not that's just you true. sort of wandering these big, lonely rooms. It also adds a tension, especially because the where they dole it out is sort of inconsistent. Like, sometimes you'll have, like, three rooms in a row with combat, and you'll go, like, a half hour without seeing any enemies. So it's like... In some areas, you have to be, like, a little bit on edge because a fight might break out there. And then even within where they sort of summon these different portals and once they introduce flying enemies that can, like, carry Yorda away and I skip over so areas, much, yeah. of the, areas of the space that you can't navigate. Like, I think for, for what it is, uh, they do, like, do – they try to do a little bit with it just within the confines of the level design. But I, I can see all the complaints leveled against it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's definitely not the strength of the game. Right. It doesn't add anything really narratively to the game outside of you feeling like Yorda's protector. I do like that when you eventually get like a proper sword and oh, you, yeah, you can just destroy all the enemies and they still keep throwing enemies at you but I sort of like that the game it, it, unlike most other games it doesn't just throw harder enemies at you instead it's like oh no now you've done this thing where you are suddenly more powerful in this world you're more empowered and you that's just like a, they're still putting they're still enemies are still in the castle they don't go away but now you're strong enough to just have that be like a little minor bump along your journey. I do love that moment when you find the sword, though, because in any, in any other game, it'd be like a special item, but it just, they're just like a pile of swords, yeah. like in every room after that. <laughs> just like, here's a sword if you need, like, like take a sword, mm-hmm. leave a sword or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I don't think it ruins the game, but it definitely detracts a bit from it. I feel like Shadow of the Colossus is much more confident in everything it does. Like, it does not waver once from its mission. In Eco, I can see what they were trying to do, but I... Just it feels like a concession to being more like a regular game to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're welcome to disagree with that. Uh, so before we move on uh, and go on to Shadow of the Colossus, I do want to talk about the countless games this game inspired. And uh, I'll name them now, and you guys can name other ones and let me know if I forget any. So I have Rain, which is so close to Eco, but I love it. Rain for the PS3, I believe. It was an indie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. I was looking at Nick. I love uh, that game. It I was gave... first, first Sony Japan published, so first yeah. party published game, but it's from an independent studio, I believe. I heartily recommend it. I'm sure it's cheap now, and I gave it a good review on US Gamers. So check that out. Uh, Brothers of Tales... it's actually free on... Well, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> it was free on a previous month on PlayStation Plus. Go back in time and figure that out. So we also have Brothers of Tales of Two Sons, which is so eco, uh, down to just how it controls and 
I mean, it, that, like with Brothers, you have a different player, a different character on each thumbstick. Mm-hmm. And using those in concert with each other leads to some pretty great puzzles. And this game could never have happened without Eco. I'm going to say, for me, that's the only game I've played that feels like it actually could have been made by Team Eco. Wow, that's a, that's a, quite a compliment. I, I, I'll have to replay it again, but I was in love with it. And like at no point was I like disappointed with that game. It's great. So we have that. We have Papo and Yo, which I'm sure mm. uh, that, I mean, I'm sure the creator even, even spoke to that. Because I read a, I read a uh, interview with Matt Leone, who uh, interviewed Ueda for 1UP back in 2011. And I think he talked to uh, the guy behind Papo. I think his name is Caballero or yep, something. Van Dirk. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I will say putting my Sony hat on for one second, <laughs> that was a game where we uh, signed it for a pub fund program. That's right. The earliest participants in that. And one of those reasons is because in their original design doc, they cited several games that were an influence, and one was uh, Eco and Shadow were both in there. And I was like, we got to fund it. this. <laughs> <laughs> we also have, this is going to be not as well known to a lot of people, but Torin, which is this Brazilian game, which is essentially like Eco but with a girl because... The, what I played of it, there is a section in the game that straight up copies the, the boss fight in Eco, where you are hiding behind like things to stop this wave from getting to you before you can reach the the boss or mm-hmm. the thing you have to hit. It's like directly taken from that. So either that was some the crazy l- Assassin's Creed does that too. Really? Yeah. Oh man! Wow. I feel uh, like I've played a lot of games that do that. Psyops did it, I think. Wow. Jeez. Okay. So uh, <laughs> maybe game. maybe Torn is not alone. So we also have uh, Lost in Shadow, which I own but haven't played, and that game looks like uh, like Eco with the serial numbers filed off, kind of. <laughs> just just based on appearances, I know it plays much differently. Has anyone played Lost in Shadow? It was a Wii game, like 2010, and I think it killed Hudson. I, I <laughs> no, that was not what killed Hudson. I heard uh, how much money they lost. On that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it was oh. one of the things that uh, I mean, they weren't doing great, but okay. Well, putting. Wow. Together a, a uh, an original Wii game, you know. I played it at a demo, uh, like a PAX or something, and I don't remember much about it. It had something to do with shadows and like blending into the shadows on the wall, but I can't yeah. remember the specific. It was like Eco meets Plato's Allegory of the Cave. <laughs> I don't know. It's a little too. Uh, well, it's like you were you were a boy cursed to be a shadow, so you you were just seeing like a shadow cast by a character instead of the character, hmm. right? There's, there's an indie game like that. I forget what it's called. Contrast. There you go. Yeah, so that, that idea didn't die. Uh, we also have Majin, Majin in the Forsaken Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I never played it, mm-hmm. but I know that also um, wasn't super popular. Did anyone play that one? Was that I played Bandai it Namco? a little bit. Okay. It, was, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember it, it came out at the time when there was a lot of attention mm-hmm. focused on The Last Guardian. So uh, there were okay. there was a certain number of people who were saying, like, this is just a ripoff of The Last Guardian. It's like, clearly this had to be in You were like, I'll just wait slightly longer for Last Guardian. <laughs> can we can we think of anything else? I mean, it's much easier um, to copy. I'm, I'm saying that in the kind of sense of the word to copy Eco because <coughs> Shadow is a wholly unique creation that no one else wants to do. So I think Eco has parts that are easier to replicate. So I think there's games even like Limbo that I would say were very inspired by <laughs> mm. like the puzzle design in For Eco, sure. where you're working with a very small set of controls. You never that you never get like new moves over the course of the game, but they still really do a lot with that. Uh, another one too, just in terms of the more narrative side of things, I think Enslaved, which is one of my favorite games of the last oh, yeah. decade or so, I think was very inspired the the relationship between Monkey and uh, Kit in the game. Um, or sorry, Kit. Trip. 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 Yeah. Mm. Send Kit for I need to get around to playing that. Trip. Uh, oh man, you gotta play it. That's that's really I think that sort of uh, there's cutscenes too, but a lot of it is that wordless communication that bonds you with another character. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about Alex in Half Life, uh, Prince of Persia 2008. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Even how it looks, you yeah. know, it's uh, Eco wasn't cel shaded, but that game has the same kind of I don't know style maybe yeah. to it. Yeah. 
And I think even um, even more modern games like Bioshock Infinite, your relationship with Elizabeth, a lot of that of like spending time in a space with another AI character, I think I would say can be traced back to Eco. Hmm. I'm I'm really surprised that Japan's glut of Moe games <laughs> has not just ripped off Eco to hell and back. It's always like some kind of like weak weak sauce RPG or something. It's never well, you'd it's have never to design style. Yeah, you'd have to design an interesting game for that to happen. I, I it's think, easier to I fall back more on money crawling. Than, I think you'd need more money than it would require than that, that most studios have to work with. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, those are our thoughts on Eco. Anything else before we wrap up and move on to Shadow? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Eco all day, but I can yeah. talk about Shadow for weeks. Yeah. So I'm excited. So let's, let's take it. a break and we'll come back and talk about Shadow of the Colossus. We're back, and we're going to talk about Shadow of the Colossus, which is which is uh, Fumito Ueda's second game of two. I guess if you want to count on Enemy Zero, it's three. But um, this was released on October 18, 2005 in the USA and on October 27th in Japan, which I guess they didn't get as much of a delay as they did with Ico. Ico? There I go again. But I, I'm going to be really hyperbolic when I say this. I I think very few games are perfect, and no game is really perfect. But in my eyes, this is one of maybe a handful of games I view as perfect, along with things like Resident Evil 4, and I can't think of any other games I think are perfect. Super Metroid. Super Metroid. That's probably mm. one of them. Uh, maybe Katamari Damashi. Uh, I don't even know about that. But, yeah, like this – this is up there with, like, the best games ever made, in my opinion, and I don't think most people would disagree with me on that. At least I've never met anyone who hated this game. No. It's definitely video gaming's best metaphor for 9-11. What? <laughs> what? Okay. In the shadow of no colossi. I don't know. Haven't you seen the Rain, Rain Over Me, which I yes. recently watched? The, oh, The Adam right. Sandler movie. Which even yeah. that alone is actually sort of interesting that the game uh, that there is like you know usually when a when a video game is in a movie it's it's just like to be a video game but right. here there is actually some like thematic yeah there's tie. yeah I was I was actually really surprised when I saw that I was like oh this this is not just like you know a screenshot of Doom with Pac Man sound effects this mm-hmm. is like they. <laughs> They found something that has, you know, like weight and heft. When did that movie come out? That was he, it's like 2009, Really? Yeah, because it felt like, why is he playing Eco in this, I mean, uh, Shadow of the Colossus in this movie if it's like almost 2010? Well, but, he, he even talked, well, because it takes place in 2002. Oh, probably. okay, got it, yeah. yeah. So this is the Rain Over Me, Adam Sandler so cast. It's, it's an ac- <laughs> anachronism. Yeah. Mm. Sheesh, okay. Well, uh, okay. well no, 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 it, the movie takes place then. The movie came out in... 2009 or whatever. Right, right. But I'm saying it's an, anach- an anachronism if he's playing Shadow of the Colossus in 2002. Uh, in the oh, movie, uh, Adam Sandler had an uncle who worked for Sony, so he got it early. Oh, three yeah. years early. <laughs> nice. Three years, right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's well, how many years work. I could be wrong. The, the one big complaint that I and a bunch of other people had with Shadow of the Colossus is why did this come out on PS2? Exactly. Why did they just wait a year and give it to us on hardware that isn't almost audibly straining under the load? This is one of the most, and probably the most ambitious PS2 
PS2 game. Uh, before we get to that, though, real quick uh, info on the development. It started in 2002 as Nico or Next Eco. But that's is, very is clever. Is that name. actually what that meant? I thought it was Nico, as in the Japanese word for two is. Um, hmm. Matt Leone's interview said that's what the code oh, name okay. stood for. So, are you calling Matt Leone a liar? No, I, <laughs> I actually <laughs> I just assumed it was like it's Eco two. So Honestly, it's Nico. Jeremy is right. I got I to call Matt Leone a liar right I, here. I, what if what if it could have just been both? Yeah. said if, if Weta says this is what it means, I'm willing to take him at it. It could be such a great pun. Word. It could be two yeah. things, right? The, the Japanese are big fans of wordplay. Yeah, so I would sure. say yes. So now that we've gotten to the bottom of that scandal, uh, the development goal for this one was to reinvent the idea of the video game boss, which he certainly did. Uh, so Eco had a team of 20. This game had a team of, I think, 35 to 40 people. Just imagine that that small amount of people putting together uh, this game. It just was Alien Soldier for the art game set. Alien Soldier. That's right, yeah. Because that was – was it that just all bosses too? Uh, it had little segments in between where you fought some dinky – Mm. middling enemies, but mostly it was boss fights. I'm glad that didn't happen in Shadow. But this was meant to... Okay, I couldn't find a source on this, and I and I knew this for a long time, but I couldn't find a source on this for research. Uh, maybe Nick or Michael or Jeremy can tell me. This was meant to be multiplayer game originally based on the, the demo pitch, which only used the horn characters because they were just easier to drop into that instead of making new ones. It, it wasn't meant to be like, these are what the eco boys look like when they grow up or whatever. But for some reason, I was, I was led to believe this was meant to be an online game. I, I believe that is the case. Okay. Okay. There is a source, even though I wish I could remember the source because I don't. But there is a there's a concept video online of a bunch right. of writers taking yeah. down what turned out to be the second Colossus, or roughly uh, like a giant bull Colossus, like in a desert. It's um, also included in the Eco Shadow of the Colossus collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, that is a fantastic uh, deal and has a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And it, the games look so good. And I think Ueda was working with them, so that's why that it came out so well. Um, so yeah, the follow-up to this takes a much different form than Eco. Instead of being just a collection of these kind of things we've seen before, but with a lot of, of a smarter approach, it's a wholly unique idea that I'd never seen before. I mean, Monster Hunter existed previous to this, but still, that was not anything like Shadow of the Colossus, even though in that game you're just fighting boss after boss after boss. Um, it's, it's very different. So... The premise of this game is you play a young man named Wander. Not the most, <laughs> not, not the most natural name, but what are you going to do? Uh, he travels to this forsaken kingdom. He steals a sword from his village, and apparently uh, his girlfriend was um, sacrificed for reasons we don't know. Well, also not clear if it's his girlfriend. Oh, that's right. Say. That's right. It could be a sister. Just a lady. Mm. Yeah, just just some lady. Could be uh, a lady who a friend he wishes to avenge. He is an avenger. Yeah. So we don't even know the relationship between the, the, the characters to begin with. And um, basically, uh, it takes a very Ken Levini kind of approach, where the the uh, the guy who's giving you instructions is like, "Okay, you can resu- you can resurrect this girl. Just kill these sixteen things, and re- and I'm going to tell you now, you're not going to like what happens, but just do it." And he's like, "Okay, well, he doesn't say anything, but he, d- he does it, and you have a horse instead of a woman uh, in this game to as your partner in in crime, I guess." Yeah, and I mean, it launches like those those things. I think are the sort of tonal similarities going to the experience like Eco, where it's this very mysterious setting. You know, a few of the basics, you know the sort of narrative thrust that gets it going and it's all about the connection with this other like AI character in right. this case with your horse and with the Colossi in a different way but but then there's of course this whole uh, you know sort of turns it on its head when you start to realize what you're doing of course which we'll get to but. and there's there's more of a narrative involved uh, like uh, mercifully they let most of the game play out without interruption but bookended there's a lot of cutscenes where in the beginning they kind of give you some vague information about this this land 
uh, through the village the elevator. Forbidden lands. Yeah, so I mean, it's nothing you couldn't have picked up before uh, or while playing the game, rather. But there's still a bit more of a direct narrative, like telling the player, like this is what's going on. But um, yeah, after that, it's kind of like what you're supposed to do is kind of like delivered through like iambic pentameter or some sort of weird like free verse poetry by Dorman, who is this like multitudinous spirit. Who you're not sure what he what he or she is or who he or she is. All you know is that this thing holds the power to bring this woman back to life, and from there you set off on your journey. And it essentially is a cycle, like a, a like a 16 loop cycle, where you're given an instruction to go find this thing, and he usually gives you a description of where it is and what it looks like and what it does. You ride your horse there and you fight it, and then you're transported back and you do it again and again. You do it 16 times, and that's essentially how the game plays out. And um, I'm not going to say this right now, like, I I can't think of a game before uh, Shadow that had such a sprawling landscape, such a sprawling game world. I mean, we have Grand Theft Auto, of course, before this, but I don't remember being able to, like, look off into, like, the rolling hills before this. I mean, we were this is before Oblivion and things like that. I mean, things like um, Morrowind existed, I'm sure, but I can't think of a game, especially in the PS2 era, that had this big of a scope in terms of where you're going and how far point A is from point B. Can you guys comment on that at all? I'm curious. I think what's especially striking about it is that it's an open world that is almost completely empty yes. and devoid of activities, and nobody complained about that. Yes. In in many other games uh, of the modern age, or even – I'm not even sure if this happened back then, but that map would be full of activities. I'm putting that in quotes. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But they trust you. Like, If you want to explore, if you want to kill a few lizards for fun, yeah. if you want Find to – Find 99 lizards. Are there 99 total? <laughs> no. Okay. I wasn't sure. There is a finite amount. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you one of 5,000 lizards right, found. Right. Please find the rest. But, I mean, you can find you can shoot down apples and stuff like that. But it's basically like scenic route the game until you fight the bosses. And then these bosses that you fight are these just amazing, like, up there with, like, the best of Metal Gear bosses in terms of just how much work and uniqueness goes into each individual boss. Like, you think there would be some repeat, repeat uh, um patterns or repeat kind of ideas throughout these bosses, but they're all pretty unique. And I think that's because they started with a much bigger number. I think it was... God, 48 originally. 48, yep. wow. Yeah. And then it got halved. And then uh, so it got, when it got halved to 24, um, those those eight that were eventually cut the game down to 16, those eight were all in some form of development. A lot of them were actually that's like right. modeled and you could, you know, some of them you could play in early states. Some never really made it past like the... Uh, concept stage, but uh, so those are sort of the eight cut ones. There's a lot of information out there about. Oh yeah, like YouTube. I, I think people have done videos on all of them, and they, they basically like there was a Kotaku story last year where it was like we met the guy who like spent six months, uh, sorry, six years in like the guts of Shadow of the Colossus, and he's like, there's nothing left to and find. I, I've, I've gone, found everything. I've gone very far down his rabbit hole, specifically on his blog, and I've spoken to him. Uh, no, his known as Nomad online. That's right. Yeah, um, and his, his YouTube channel is called Nomad. Uh, Hold on, I have it on here somewhere, but please continue. It's called, yeah, I think it's called Nomad Colossus or something. That's right, like that. yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's fascinating. He comes, has some really interesting theories about all sorts of stuff in the game that you would never really read into, but once you start digging in, he actually has some great evidence. Um, even things at a very high level, like he has a previous Wanderers theory uh, where other Wanderers have come to the space before mm. and try to do a similar thing because there's sort of remnants outside each Colossus arena of sort of someone who's been there before. Oh, wow. Um, okay. There's this whole, one of the sort of the most infamous theories is this intersecting point 
points theory where there's a space on the map that all these things line up even so far as the art on the game disc uh, sort of points out this one spot on the map where everyone the community for years was theorizing that like that was where the 17th Colossus well, is. And I'd... actually, if you, <laughs> there's a Pop Fiction episode on game trailers uh, all about this mythical 17th Colossus. Okay, I have where, to see this. Yes. Uh, like I found this link this morning when I was about to go and I was like, oh, I want to watch all this, but I couldn't. But it all looks very interesting. Like just how, how, how big this game, I mean, it's still a big game, but there used to be even bigger. And I can't imagine how much work it would be to design 48 uh, Colossi yeah. because, yeah. And there's remnants on the map, of especially those final eight that were cut from the game. A lot of places where they would have been and uh, elements of theirs that their design that was rolled up into the other Colossus. And, you know, once you start, again, going down that rabbit hole, there's uh, so much of that's really interesting. Uh, but even with all that, there's still so much mystery to the game. And to your point about the scale, like, there, I guess there may have been sort of geographically larger games, but the fact that Michael was saying that there's almost nothing to do, really. Right, yeah. And yet you still want to explore it basically because of that. Because you know there is little things to do and you really want to find those things. And, and even there's, you know, there's like turtles in one of the lakes somewhere uh, or, you know, fish swimming around. But even those you sort of really have to go out of your way to see. Um, there's some eagles in the game that are slightly larger and different than the other birds that if you can grasp them, they can hold your weight and carry you around that were intentional in that the game. That is so, so much mm-hmm. fun, yeah. Little things like that that you really, you know, your curiosity is rewarded. And I think that that's really the heart of the game is uh, leaning on human curiosity, really, um, to I, be the thrust of a lot of the experience. I really think that speaks to this game's underlying, co- like, absolute confidence in everything it does. Like, it is never worried about, will the player be bored? Will the player be confused? Like, will the player know what to do? It trusts you because it feel it's confident in what it's doing, and that's what I think the sense I get from this game, like, I, I know when games aren't confident. I know when they're like, you're going to get lost, so here's a thing to help you. Or, like, oh, are, are you stuck? Why don't you skip this level and Tr- come back trusting later? Trusting a like, player is something so few games do, especially modern games. Yeah. That feels, like, uh, weirdly antiquated, sadly. Now it's all about, like, rounding off those sharp edges and making sure that you, like, you know, if you're not doing the right thing for more than a minute, it's going to, like, hammer it over the head. Yeah, it's, it's, it's afraid you're going to look at an iPhone game, yeah. <laughs> like, immediately. Because <laughs> realistically, you you probably are. Yeah, right? yeah. Like a lot of content. Well, things are loading, you're playing threes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, this game is so confident in what it does. And it, it does add a few more, again, gamey things because it kind of has to have a UI, you know. Otherwise, it would be kind of confusing knowing, like, what your health was, what your stamina was. But, again, you're, giving a, you're given a very basic set of tools outside of the weird, wacky weapons you can get after you beat the game once. You have a sword you have a bow, you have a horse, uh, you have your hands, and that's basically it. And you essentially have to find the weak points, figure out a way to get to the weak points, and then stab the colossi in the weak points. And what is really amazing about this game, and I, again, hyperbole abound here, but, you know, deal with it, everybody. Like, the physics model of what's happening is just crazy because, like, at any time the platform a.k.a. the Colossi, could shift in any way, and your character moves along with those shifts. So while it shakes you off, you're, like, holding on for dear life. And dear God, that guy has some upper body strength. He should be so ripped. Like, that. I, I want to see, like, huge muscles because there's no way anyone could hang on as long as this guy does to, like, flailing monsters. Yeah. And then that escalates. I mean, just keeps going up until, like, the, uh, I believe, the fifth Colossus, Avion, the, like, bird Colossus. That's, you know, at that point, then, not too much longer later, you were, like, holding on midair while it's, like, spinning and turning upside down, and you're, like, dropping from yes. one wing, luckily, down to another. So the the... Just the like spectacle of that really escalates really quickly. I was gonna say you brought you brought up the topic. Uh, that is my favorite Colossus. Uh-huh. Like going back to it again, even this time, I'm, I'm like, okay, how impressive this, is this game gonna be? I'm riding on the back of this like demon bird, like crawling along its wings as it's flying and trying to shake me off. I'm like, mm. there is no other boss fight like this. This is still my favorite boss fight. Period. Like. 
it's just as fun to revisit it, even though I can beat it in like 20 seconds. But like you have to get its attention, jump onto its wings as it's swooping towards you, and then hang on for dear life as it's trying to get rid of you. And like it's uh, it's just so amazing. And, and that's another one too that really I mean we can we'll probably get into this more, but the whole really theme of the game where ultimately you're you're not quite the bad guy, but you're like the invader into these lands. You're disturbing them, and that's when we're like Avion will not move is perched on this thing across from a lake, and you know in this ruined temple until you provoke Avion and shoot right, it with an yeah. arrow, and then it swoops down, and then it's up to you to sort of well, jump on and, and kill it. And that's sort of the first example. Well, not even the first example. I guess really the first Colossus is the first example where you were the aggressor. Like he's just sort of wandering around, and you have to take the first step and. It's interesting that I think some of the most beautiful and memorable fights in that game are against non-aggressive colossi mm-hmm. like Avion. There's that huge snake thing underwater that can't it, like it can hurt you with its little electrical things, but it's not trying to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that giant flying thing in Phalanx. the desert, Phalanx. Yeah, yeah, yeah that. And that's amazing. the one too that is. That never actually – it's the only one that like never actually attacks you is completely peaceful and yeah, you're totally the aggressor and that's yeah. one of the most beautiful fights in the game. <laughs> that's also one of the points where I started to realize like I'm not doing the right thing yeah. here. Yeah, it is cool. I mean not all of their relationships with uh, Wander are unique but each one will treat him in a, in a different kind of way. Like some, like you said, are just docile because they're too big to notice him and like what is this weird bug that's crawling on me? That's basically what their relationship is. I find the smaller ones are the ones that will are like are territorial and aggressive. Like it's yep. like it's like finding a bear in the woods or something they're going to try to get you out of there. And they're space. really intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the bull the bullfight one? Yeah. Oh man. That one's great. But uh, another thing that plays into this game a lot is uh, music, and uh, I've been really thinking about this a lot uh, as I was playing through it again, and music is such a great component of the design of the fights because it changes dynamically as you do better. So like you're struggling, the music is very tense and very like, oh man, what's going to happen now? But once you jump onto the Colossus, the music changes into this like sweeping heroic uh, kind of theme, even though you're doing a terrible thing. And in some of the boss fights, the music actually lets you know, like, this is the right thing to do. Like, there's a boss fight where you have to hide behind these columns. So one of the Colossi will bend down and you grab onto his beard and climb up. But when you go behind the columns, the music actually gets softer. So you're like, that's a clue. So I feel like the way the music plays into this, the design of the fights themselves, I think the way the songs transition between each other could be a little more natural, but they're working with pre-recorded orchestral tracks. So what are you going to do? Like, one just fades into the other. Sure. So it's and not- it goes the other way, too. Like, going back to Avion, if you fall off when you're, like, you know, it's big epic music when you're in the sky sky like and you're tumbling around but if you fall off back down to the water the track will change and be like yeah. the quiet track when you first got to the area and then you'll have to provoke it again and sort of start the whole thing over and the music in this game is uh, fantastic it's by Kao Otani and I'm not sure if uh, I think it's a he uh did any other video game music, but he mostly, uh, he or she mostly did um, a lot of anime stuff like Hainbei Renmei or whatever that anime is with the angel ladies. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. I'm just pulling facts out of here. Uh, Jeremy, did you ever play Shadow? You're conspicuously quiet. Not yet. Oh, my God, Jeremy. Oh, man. It is a bit shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. Again, I haven't had the occasion to write about it, so I haven't had the occasion to We'll have to, to figure that it. out. So I'm trying to think of anything else about this game. I do well, want to say oh, – oh, sorry, Nick. I was going to say I think – I think I mean I guess stuff we haven't talked about too much. Like the Colossi are the – that's the, the bulk of the gameplay, right? And we talked a bit about exploring that world. But I think the things that make it memorable are, one, it's like the spaces in between the lines basically, which is that sure. world to explore. And the fact that you are – coming to terms with what you're doing over the course of the game, even as soon as the first Colossus. Like, when you kill him, there's no sort of, like, Final Fantasy celebratory music. Uh, the game, you don't get experience points, anything. Just 
sad music plays, yeah. the bosses collapse, blood sprays out, and then you're, like, attacked by these tendrils and whisks off. Like, from very early on, you start feeling guilty, really, about this, um, or at least conflicted or confused. And then when re- you revisit the areas, you can you just see, like, a heap of rubble yeah. where, where this yeah. beautiful and, creature used to be that you killed. And yeah. to me, that actually, over time, made the world start to feel a bit smaller over time when there were all these places that were sort of, like, a site of trauma that I didn't want to revisit <laughs> and I wouldn't want to go near there. That's actually why I've never done the time trial stuff mm-hmm. to try out the different weapons because it's like, I, I mean, I enjoy the killing the monsters in the context of the narrative of the game and actually just doing it itself. But doing it for like as like a challenge for a reward feels kind of strange to it's me. A like, yeah, it, the whole. Yeah, I'm glad that that is in the game, but um, you know, it's just I've I've never done it. Maybe I'll do. It. I just want to see what those weird gamey? weapons are. It is a little gamey. <laughs> Very gamey. <laughs> this meat's a little gamey. But, but to me, those elements of like exploring the lands and the sort of you know. Uh, not, not quite a twist, but, like, the reasoning behind why you're doing all this and what you're actually doing and then killing the Colossi, that's what I think makes the game memorable and historically relevant. I think if it were only just this boss gauntlet, even if the bosses were awesome, it wouldn't have the same effect. I don't think we'd be talking about it in the same way. That's true, yeah. I mean, I think it all works together in concert. I mean, the... The way it trusts you is amazing. The way it tells a story is amazing. Again, it's one of those stories that can only be told through the player performing actions rather than, like, we're going to show you a cutscene, yep. which is great. Um, one of one thing that Shadow did to me, at least, and maybe you guys can weigh in on this and, like, how it affected you, it's, like, I was a younger man when I, when I played this, and I was under the impression that a lot of people who play video games are under, where it's, like, oh, things are naturally just going to keep getting better over time. So having played this game, I'm, like, oh, this is the beginning of a new era for games. Like, everything is going to be this great. This trusting, this amazing, this imaginative, and then immediately we ran right into the HD era. Everything got immediately conservative in terms of design, in terms of trust. That's eventually getting better because of the indie movement, things like that. But I almost stopped playing new games during the 360 generation or the PS3 generation because, like, I was like, I want these shadow experiences, like... I didn't realize it was kind of an evolutionary dead end at the time, but it's like I had that 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 weird misunderstanding, like, oh, games are just going to be this good or better from now on, but well, that wasn't the case at I, all. Games went the other way. Yeah. Like, that was almost like a branching moment, and especially because Grand Theft Auto 3, I believe, came out that same fall, right? And it's like, <laughs> what if what if Shadow would have topped the charts? Like, it's, yeah, very different. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. thinking of Eco in terms of that. Oh, yes. Eco was that, Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Eco was what I was thinking about that way. But it's like, yeah, same thing. What if Eco had been the game that, like, that was the big chart topping. Like everyone was like, "Oh, that's what we want to make." Instead of like open world crime games, you want to make like <laughs> that's true, holding yeah. hand games, you know. But it's not not so much in the in I mean in the case of what the games were about, but it's also in the case of like the the uh, anxieties of the HD era that we've all lived through. Like, oh, these games are so expensive. We can't make any. We can't take any risks anymore. We have to make sure that like people know where to go at all times because the, these are these are our consumers and we need to win them over. But this game was challenging in a way, not in terms of difficulty. It is a hard game, I think, but in terms of like leaving you to your own devices and trusting you to get what they're trying to do. And that it, took a while for modern AAA games to do again. I think it's my understanding too that Shadow wasn't focus tested at all, which I think goes a long way oh. too because now that's a big <laughs> culture of of you know AAA game publishing really um, is making sure people again, always know what to do, where to go, and the game is like hammering it over your head if you get confused for a second. But this game is really all about that. Even even the basic like navigation when it's like you know, in the beginning, Dorman tells you, like, go, basically go kill the first Colossus, and you step out into this vista, and you hold up your sword, and you have, like, this light off your sword. Yeah, that's Even all. Even that basic navigation is very different from any other game. And actually, I'm surprised that hasn't been used more, because it's a really cool sort of 3D map. Um, but even that, it's like, go vaguely in that direction and discover what you're going to discover. And if you want to go run around the map for hours and not do that, sure, go for it. You just eventually will have to come back. Yeah, he's not like, uh, should you go back to doing the thing I told you? Yeah, like, there's no, like, intervention when you're doing the thing a mm-hmm. game doesn't want you. That's, that's one of the things I, I like to do when I'm playing a 
demo for something, I, I immediately try to break the rules and see how the game responds. And usually it's just like you're, you're often chided, you know, like, oh, no, go back on the path because we want you to get to the end and be happy and write a good review on, like, GameFAQs or something. <laughs> yeah, but, the, uh, that, that's like the Tokyo Game Show quintessential experience. Anytime you try to do a... Uh, like break from the the prescribed path in a, a Tokyo Game Show demo. There's like a lady there who very politely is like, "No, you need to go this way. Jump over this. the pit." Yeah, I'm like, "But I want to see what else is out there." So I mean, you know, what, they don't hold with that. Was was I wrong to think that? Was I just my brain was still developing, or maybe I just misunderstood misunderstood the situation in that games would just take off, like use this as a jumping off point, and just become more spectacular, more trusting, more open, more inventive. Um, Anyone thoughts? I'm just interested. Well, it's a bit like independent film, too. It's like you have to be okay with a really slow-paced experience that doesn't tell the viewer much in some artsy film that would never be for the for the mainstream crowd. Like, I think there's going to be a certain type of artsy experience, especially one that's, you know, interactive, that's only ever going to appeal to some people. So maybe it was never sort of destined to... To be mainstream in that way. Yeah, I mean, it sold well, but it didn't sell, like, Grand Theft Auto numbers. And then I saw some some jerk who posted, like, why does everyone care about The Last Guardian? Look at what the the last two games sold. And he, like, posted sales numbers. I'm like, you have no heart. <laughs> like, what's like, that's what? all you care about? More money equals better than. We all need to think about that and for a while. And Shadow did really well. I mean, I believe it's sold over a million copies. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like I said, those aren't, like... To Sims numbers, but still for a game sure. this artistic and yeah, made like, by you said like forty people. Right. Yeah, and That's... interestingly, it was really a U.S. phenomenon. It didn't do very well in Japan, even Europe, not nearly. Like the bulk of the sales were in the U.S., which is really interesting. Telling you a metaphor for nine eleven. Yeah, <laughs> and Americans don't like to not be told what to do. Like, exactly. <laughs> We uh, fall in line pretty easy. Well, yeah, you know that that's that's kind of uh, ties into the Last Guardian. I think um, was it Shu Yoshida who said like, yeah, this game has been in development for a long time, but it hasn't been that expensive compared to a Western developed game where you have a studio of like five hundred people making the game. It's a much smaller project than that. So it's not going to be a bloodbath when it finally comes out. And it sort of has to be that way. The game wouldn't be the same if it's made by hundreds of people because you start you sort of start to feel that dilution to, mm-hmm. at some extent. Like the, the only way games like Eco and Shadow can exist is if it's really the vision of one person and then another small group of people close to him that buy into that. That's the only way it can happen. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the things that made me so upset about The Last Guardian's disappearance. And I, and I mention this in everything I write about it. It's just like Ueda is such a great an imaginative and wonderful person to have in games, but he was removed from us for a decade. Like, I can't imagine. Imagine if Miyamoto made, like, Mario and Zelda and then just disappeared and came back, like, in the, in the late 90s. Like, hey, guys, what I miss? You know, like, we were robbed of more games from him, you know, and I don't know what happened again. I just am happy that The Last Guardian is being made and finished so he can just do other things because that has just been, like, I feel it's, like, unfair. It was unfair to society for him to be removed from <laughs> us. Like, it's a, it's a great injustice, I think. I don't know if you guys agree. I mean, he's, he's welcome to just leave games entirely if he wants to, but apparently he's sticking it out. And, well, again, like, I went into this thinking with my 2015 brain, like, how how much is this going to win me over again? Like, and immediately it's I, I just dove right in. Like, I wasn't like, you can't see every blade of grass rendered individually. <laughs> what the hell is this? No, it just was like, oh, my God, the, the physics are so great. Well, Everything is so consistent. And these nothing felt wrong to it's me. It's still stunningly gorgeous, too. Yeah. Like, it's, it's my favorite game. So, again, I'm filled with a lot of hyperbole, too. I, for me, it's, like, the best-looking game. A lot of it is art, really, as well. But, like, yeah. just the scale of it. I think the bridge in the game, mm. I was thinking about it, I think it's the largest object in a game, period. Like, I can't... Which bridge? Uh, The the one... The the bridge that you walk over at the beginning of the bridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
um, like the the main. Yeah, uh, that is what sold me on the 3D. Actually, just standing below that bridge and looking up at it, like, oh my god, I can I can tell how big this is. It's crazy. And throughout the little uh, save shrines in the game that are sort of out in the world, if you climb to the top of one, the camera will pull back and sort of give you this beautiful vista in front of you. A lot of it looking back at the bridge. And that bridge is one of your few sort of like visual landmarks. And there's interesting things like when you're fighting uh, Quadratus, the second Colossus, down on the sort of beach down in a cave, you see the base of the cracked pillars of well, the bridge. Right, yeah. and so it's, it's, it just sort of fits into everything in the world, which is really interesting. And there's things actually we haven't talked about, like uh, all the incremental things that happen over time that are subtle. But when you talked about the cycle of doing this 16 times and journeying out, each time you come back to the temple, you awake so, – well, first of all, there's these statues that represent the sort of the physical manifestation of the Colossi in the temple that burst. So a statue bursts. There's a crowd of shadowed figures around you when you wake up, and each time there's one more shadowed figure. There's one more dove flitting around Mono, which is the name of the girl. Yeah, I, I don't know what the doves um, were there for. I mean, they're I, they're I, a symbol for peace, I guess. But, but I think uh, they're also meant to represent like one is sort of the soul of the Colossus. Oh, like, okay, Because yeah. there's one more each time. Um, there's also there's these beams of light that shoot up into the sky that represent where you killed the Colossus, so there's one more beam. Like, all these little things that increment in the world uh, to sort of see your effect on it and the effect on Wander because he starts to become sort of like his skin becomes a bit mottled yeah. and dark, and by the end of the game, you look like borderline demonic, uh, yeah. which really fits in. I don't know if we want to spoil the whole thing, but... Um, well, again, it's a it's an old game, and I think people listening to this show will have some experience Hopefully with Shadow of the Colossus. We have warned them. So if you haven't played it, turn this off now and play it and then come back. But Nick, please spoil away. I'll see you guys. Basically, at the end, you find out that what you've been doing uh, is you've sort of been uniting these. So, Dorman, the, the, the entity that's sort of like in this land, said if you kill these 16 Colossus, he could bring the girl back to life. Those are like the 16 parts of him that were banished to this land and split up, and he's being united as you're killing them. And then he basically takes over your body at the end and turns into this sort of giant demon that you end up controlling uh, before sort of everything goes to hell from there. Like these riders show up to try to stop you, but they're too late. You're already the demon. Um, And then they end up sort of banishing you. And that really is the heart of this game, this moment at the end where you are being, you sort of turn, you're you're sort of being sucked towards the well of this pool that's in the base of the temple. Um, And... You know, like this priest has cast a spell, you're being pulled back into it, all the sort of demonic stuff has been stripped out of you a bit, but they sort of need to like cleanse you from this world basically because you sort of defied everything and went to this land, reunited this guy. Um, and there's a moment where you are sort of like, uh, Mono is still there lying on this altar away from you and this force is sucking you into the well and you can grip onto the ground and try to stop it for as long as you can because really at its heart it's a game about holding on and letting go like both you know mechanically when you're fighting the Colossus and holding on to them but at the end just like the moment in Eco where uh, where uh, Yorda saves you here it's your turn where like you have to let go that's yeah. the only way to have the game go on 
Um, there's also a really interesting game trope, and let me know if I'm getting way too off the rails here. No, but please. There's a game trope. There's this uh, gaming academic named Nick Fortugno uh, in New York. He's also one of the designers of Diner Dash. He wrote this whole paper about this concept called futile interactivity um, around Shadow. Because traditionally, a lot of like Roger Ebert and other film critics are like, you can't have dramatic tension in the same way uh, as you can in a film. But really, his answer was, you have these moments of futile interactivity that really makes itself known in Shadow. Moments like that where... Y- it's only going to end one way, but you have to sort of be in that moment and understand that, and whatever you do is going to change it, but that can still have a really meaningful, dramatic impact on the player. That's also the case after every Colossus battle where, you know, they could have easily just, like, given you the final blow, go to a cutscene, and go back to the temple, but they don't. They give you this moment where you are there, there's sort of the Colossus' body is being enveloped by darkness, and you have sort of a few seconds to run around and try to understand things, and inevitably, every single time, these black tendrils shoot out and, like, kill yeah, you, you can only, You can only make it so far without getting zapped and then sucked back. Yeah. And so that's and a recurring thing of these, and I think is used in other games as well, even like the, uh, the like, I think of Metal Gear 4, or like the crawling through the... Events and I just, you are the the nuke in Call of Duty for yeah totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What really makes that work, Nick? And you're right. And I sorry for stating the obvious here, but the ending is an interactive sequence. Like they never take the control away from you until a certain point when it's like, oh, I can see why I can't control myself now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you were playing out that ending, you were playing out the final struggle, and like you said, you have to make the choice to let go. And that could have easily been just a cutscene that you watch, but because you were in it and making the decisions, even though they're inevitable decisions to make, uh, it makes it all the more powerful because you are the person. You were, you were controlling the story, regardless of if the story's on rails or not. So, yeah, like, okay, Shadow of the Colossus, what more can we say? Uh, no game has really ripped it off, I think, or copied it in any way. I mean, Titan Souls. That's no one's even really tried, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it is such a unique pr- – I mean, we could say, okay, yeah, uh, Eco is like – Prince of Persia with a buddy system or whatever, right? You can you can you can be that reductive, but Shadow of the Colossus, there's nothing like it. So if you're making a game that's like it, you're just making that game again. You know what I mean? It, the, I mean the the idea is so specific that I don't think anyone could really copy it. I mean, have you guys I mean, heard of, or played Titan I've, Souls? I've well, yeah, I've played I'm Titan, Titan Souls. Souls sure. Okay, oh, that's Titan Souls. I haven't played it, but it's it's like is it like Shadow of the Colossus from what I've heard in, uh, in a way? In, in that it's, uh, you know, there's nothing but bosses mm-hmm. and you have like one simple weapon to fight them with. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's obviously, it's it's like inspired by it. It has to be, right? There's no, okay, yeah. Um, sorry, Michael, you are saying? No, I was going to say I have seen certain mechanics uh, stolen from other games. Like, I have seen that, I, yeah. I've played a bunch of games where I've like had to climb around on some big thing to fight it. I mean, uh Sly 3, Sly Cooper 3, like, stole it, like, just a year or two later. There was a scene where, like, Carmelita Fox goes, gets, like, really gigantic because she puts on this cursed mask, and you have to climb up her and uh, destroy the mask. God, what a bun- that, that, That's just, like, a bundle of fetishes right there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they made it sexier. And maybe she swallows you whole. And, and then gives oh, birth to you, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's how it has to work. <laughs> Um, Lords, of, <laughs> Lords of Shadow, Castlevania mm-hmm. had that uh, like for one of the boss fights near the end. God of War has a lot of it too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I'm actually Even, thinking of um, I mean, Monster Hunter uh, predates Shadow of the Colossus, but like it, just in the most recent version of the game, did they add the ability to jump on the monsters? Although it's not nearly as natural as it is in Shadow. Sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say even like Mass Effect where the the very final uh, encounter in the space station, there's like this gigantic space leviathan that you're kind of struggling toward. It's not exactly the same, but it definitely has that same sense of like it's so big and you're so little, but you still have to, you know, you still have to triumph somehow. 
Yeah, and I think maybe Dragon's Dogma, where you can climb on the monsters. Although I didn't yeah, play too they're much, much of Dragon's they're Dogma. They're much smaller. Yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was trying to think of, of what game was coming to mind, and that's the one. Okay, yeah. But yeah, there's there's really nothing like it, and uh, like all my life, I'm gonna be chasing that 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 uh, that high of the uh, riding on the back of the avian. His name is mm-hmm. the fifth boss. Yeah, like they don't, there's no official names, by the way. Oh well, like I people I listen to a podcast uh, and they're naming them. Like where do the names come from? It's <laughs> it's interesting. Nintendo I, Power. I've been uh, way down. <laughs> I've been way down. Nintendo Power writing about this game. You know, just to spread lies. Yeah, I've been doing lots of detective work, but actually, it seems like there isn't one sort. Of, I mean that. Those, I guess, came from a uh, some magazine in Japan, I guess, the ones that... There's sort of two sets of names. There's actually three sets of names total. But those two sets of names that are used mostly come from, like, unofficial sources like that. Like, in the game, they don't ever actually... Right, yeah. Out, which is interesting. I wasn't sure if they had any, like, code names in, like, while, while working uh, on They them, did, maybe. but they were called... Just called things like... like, like well, Monkey was one of the ones... That flying, or, like, yeah, Worm. Yeah. Like, yeah, Minotaur. Like, just sort of single word descriptions. And that was so that they could be easily discussed uh, internationally, too. But regardless of what they're called, yeah, yeah. Uh, that fifth boss in this game still... That's, like, maybe top three gaming moments of my life. That's probably number one or two. Like, mm-hmm. I can't think of, like, just doing it again, like, a few days ago made me think, like, I, nothing has done this that made me feel this way yet. This this feeling of just this situation that nothing has put me in. And it's just so exhilarating and, and fresh and interesting. And maybe we'll see something like that in The Last Guardian, I'm hoping. What's your favorite, Michael? My favorite, favorite what? Colossus. Wait, 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 oh. wait, first, what's your favorite Michael? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is Michael Jordan. Oh, gosh. You know what? Come Mine back. Colossus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always really liked the one with the beard, but I was just thinking there's there's one that I'm faintly remembering because I haven't made it this far in a very long time, but it's like in the middle of a lake and it's basically an island mm-hmm. that comes to life. Yeah, Pelagia. That's right. Yeah, is yeah. The, is the common parlance name. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one and the the water uh, dragon snake mm-hmm. thing. Like, I, re- I love that so much. And really it, cool. being dragged underwater and saying, like, and it's a similar effect to, like, being on Avion's wings and just, like, there's that wind effect going by you and you can sort of feel uh, yourself being pushed back. Yeah, you're just, like, being dragged through the water. Yeah, it's yeah, great. it's the same thing, except uh, do you have to worry about your air underwater? I forget. You, you do, yeah, yeah. Your air is actually the same thing as your stamina, ah, okay. uh, which is interesting. Like, yeah. you're sort of holding on power. Um, and, yeah, sometimes you'll dive deep and you just have to let go at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, Jeremy, what's I, your I favorite? I feel like, <laughs> um, like I said, you know, the one on the cover, <laughs> Peter Rus- Rasputin. Um, no, I, I was going to say, I feel like the Pikmin games actually channel a lot of the spirit of Shadow of the Colossus. Although hmm. you are not actually climbing on the creatures yourself, you're constantly going up against these gigantic monstrosities, bug, you know, bug beetles or whatever they're called. Um, and there's even one in Pikmin 3 that is basically like a living island that's just enormous. Mm-hmm. And even though you're not doing it yourself as Olimar, you're still throwing lots of little Pikmin on there. And there is that kind of like twinge of guilt when when your little guys get killed because of your actions. Or, you know, you even feel kind of bad about killing these creatures that are just living in nature and totally happy to just, you know, eat their fruit or whatever. Especially when you kidnap their babies and use them against them in Pikmin exactly. 2. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so cruel. Pikmin exactly. 2 is the most amoral game ever. They're, they're, I feel like... Um, Maybe I wouldn't say it channels Shadow of the Colossus since it actually predates the game, but it does tap into that same sense of like, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, like it is vast and scary and you must overcome it somehow. Uh, you know. So what you're saying is Pikmin 4 needs tiny horses. And versus nature, the road to victory. Everything needs tiny horses. I think so. Actually, we didn't even talk about the horse. That, that's a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. we can – I mean, yeah, uh, Agro, is that, is that the yeah. horse's name? And um, I mean like – 
Agro, there's not the arc that Yorda goes through, but, like, Agro is kind of the rock, like, mm-hmm. the most reliable, like, source mm-hmm. of power in the game in that, like, you're always on his back except when you're fighting, and sometimes when you're fighting, you're on his back for a few fights. You kind of have to be. But, um, Nick, talk about uh, Agro. Like, I, I think the biggest interesting thing, and, and actually, so I also used to always call uh, Agro a him because it's referred to that in the game. I only I only found out that uh, Agro is a, actually a, a woman horse. Yeah, which was, <laughs> like, was like a weird demonization thing. Yes. A mare, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is that I think she controls unlike any other horse in the game because you are always only ever controlling Wander. You're not controlling Agro. So, and you really feel that too. So you're sort of pulling the reins and she'll listen to you, but it's got sort of this like delay and this drifting effect that you sort of become mm-hmm. used to. But it's interesting because it doesn't, it's not just like you are the car, suddenly you are the horse. It's like you are only ever Wander whether you're on a Colossus' back or riding Agro. And really just, you're just pumping that X button and like just kind of yeah. turning the reins and stuff. And like to their credit, it never, I never find myself like boxed in like Austin Power style trying to back out of like a tiny area <laughs> right. like it, it, the horse is, is like a living thing it's smart enough it's like I'm not going to plumb it off of a cliff and that's never a, a, like a yeah, danger in the game yeah. she'll hesitate and actually sometimes if you're in sort of a small uh, like a tighter path that is curvy you can just hold X and she will navigate the way like she'll oh, wow. find it which is interesting so you're sort of like relying on you're, you're putting a lot of trust in your horse as well both uh, just running around the world and she's used in probably I'd say three to I forget exactly but three to five of the battles yeah. where it involves being on horseback and having a race to catch up to a Colossus or leap off her back or something, uh, which is interesting then too because you feel very protective of her and oftentimes I want to like get her off on the side <laughs> and run away, but sometimes you need to be like riding like the the tenth colossus uh, dirge is the worm that chases you through the sand. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, that's and great that's one where you have to sort of your you have to really put all your trust in Agro for that one and trust that she will not run you into a wall because you have to turn the camera around and like shoot dirge in the eye to, uh, while you're galloping. So. Man, that horse. Um, there was one other thing. Yeah, like sometimes, like again, like caring about the thing. Like you eventually care about the horse, right? Like you were saying that was your example. Like mine was um, when sometimes you, the horse can make these jumps sometimes, and you're and like as the horse is flying through the air, you're like, oh my god, this looks bad. And then like the horse just lands like all four hooves at once, and it just looks like that must have hurt the horse. Like I felt bad. Just like I'm gonna try to not jump you off of cliffs, Agro, because I like you. You're a buddy. <laughs> uh, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain. I can talk about it because I played it and wrote about it. But there's also a horse in the game. But this horse is like, if it dies, like just another horse shows up. Like, hey, hey, buddy, <laughs> I inherited his consciness through yeah. the uh, nano machine. That's right? sort of like the Red Dead Redemption horse too. Like the horses like feel good and they're cool, but like you don't have a horse. There's just horses that you can ride. Yeah, yeah. Like there. Yeah. I mean, and I, Agro can't be killed. I, I, I think Agro can be knocked over uh, along with you, but there's no. She can't die, right? True. Yeah. There, there is though the. Of course, the like oh, yeah. heartbreaking moment of the <laughs> yes. game we didn't t- even talk about, where you think she dies basically, and she plummets off a cliff and sort of sacrifices herself t- for you to make the final leap to go tackle the final Colossus. Uh, which I'd say, probably since like uh, Eris and Final Fantasy VII, is like the most impactful like gaming death. It, it doesn't turn out yeah, to be a death, but I don't know if I cried necessarily, but it really, really got to me the first time I saw it. Uh, not expecting that to happen at all. Mm-hmm. It was was a moment of horror and a moment like the real. Realization that, like, number one, this happened, and my first instinct whenever I see a, a death in a game is to like, was there something I could have done to prevent this? Is mm-hmm. there something I needed to do? Should I reload an earlier save? And then realizing that, like, no, that's if this is final, aggro's not coming back yeah. while you're playing, is like. Well, you're you're screwed now. You, you have no choice but to to go forward into the center of hell and fight this last it, colossus. It really is the point of no return, and like more than any other time I played through this game, and it's only been a few times because I like I played through it once in 2005, and I wanted to, that experience to just stay with me, so I didn't play through it again until the HD collection. But 
So I, I'm only just replaying it for the third time now, and what really struck me is, like, what a series of bad ideas this main character is making. Like, they're for a good reason, but it's just, like, that point of no return is just, like, I don't think he is even valuing his own life. I mean, you can read as much into that as you want, but it's all for this this sacrifice, all for this 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 woman who we don't know. But, like, just, ending, just being in the valley and then, you know, people from the village show up and you realize, like, what a mistake he's made, like, what rules he's broken and how, like, what from the beginning of the game, he can never go back. Like, he's a dead man. He's a walking dead man. And this time, that really sunk, hit home with me. And, yeah. And I Ueda, Ueda should develop a Breaking Bad video game. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I can't really, I mean, are there other games you guys can think of that have done something like that? Because, again, I feel like even the parts of Shadow that could be uh, that could have like inspired other games like that that are really the heart and soul of the game weren't really I mean there's a lot of indie games I think now that uh, focus on sort of the heart the the core mechanics of the game are you doing something even like Papers Please um, that is sort of more you know you're not clear what your role is your morality you have some decisions to make like but triple A games by and large uh, don't there's, do that. there's near near I played a bit of Nier, but what what does Nier do that? Is- uh, so this is all secondhand information. I haven't finished the game myself, but um, basically there are these bizarre monsters that you're fighting throughout the game, and when you beat the game, you can play through a second time and understand what the creatures are saying, mm. and all of them are like humans who have been transformed or something, and they're all... Uh, maybe I'm getting some of the details wrong, but they're all like basically begging for mercy and oh, saying, wow. please don't kill us. And none of them, you know, they, it's all like the Colossi. They, they right. mean you no harm. Uh, and so you don't understand what they're saying the first time through the game, but once you understand, apparently from what everyone has said, uh, uh, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong, um, it's just like really makes you stop and say, oh, wow, I'm, I've hmm. been playing this terrible asshole this entire time. <laughs> and it makes sense. And Nier actually has a lot of aesthetic similarities, I'd say, mm. too, with Shadows. So it's clear that because mm, they were sure, inspired yeah. in multiple ways. So I do want to talk about real briefly Last Guardian uh, based on the E3 demo that I watched multiple times. It, it's, it, it seems to be con- combine the environmental puzzles of Eco with the monster interactions of Shadow, although in this case the monster is a good guy. I don't know if there are other enemies in the game. I don't know if there are other bosses in the game. But what I saw of it made me think, yeah, I want to play this now. So, I mean, do you guys still care, like, I don't know, six years after it was supposed to come out? Or hmm. I don't know. I, I just, I'm just curious because, I, like— I had a strange reaction to it because I actually waited for half an hour at E3 uh, in the line to, to get into the theater to see it. And uh, I ended up actually being a bit more impressed with uh, the gorilla uh, game that was showing first. Horizon. Horizon, oh, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which looked really cool. But then going into uh, Last Guardian, it was like, well, this is all really cool, but except for that bit where you're – the the creature is hissing and you have to move that big uh, like empty crossbow platform. Like this is all stuff that I've seen before in previous looks at the games. I'm really happy this is happening. I'm really excited to see this, but I would have liked to have seen something new. Yeah, that was the only downside for me and it's just like it is It is hard. Like, OK, Shadow of the Colossus is a really hard act to follow. Uh, like I said, like we were all saying, it is a wholly unique game and – Doing that more than once in your career has to be the most impossible thing ever. So I just I want to see what is beyond what we know about this game. Uh, Nick, you probably don't know any secrets, but what what do you think about this? If you're allowed to talk about like Sony game opinions, well, I was, I'm not sure if you are. Um, <laughs> I 
probably have to be more careful. Yeah. But I guess what I was going to say is, to me, you know, seeing the demo, I was like, oh, wow, great. It's great to see that it's, like, still a thing and it's a real game and now it's on PS4 and I, I'm as excited as I ever was. I'm still actually, honestly, in no rush to have it, especially now that it's been that long. It's like, cool, take your time as long as I can still play it at some point, as long as he's going to make another game. That's great. Um, the, the demo, I think, though, I, I guess watching it, it's like, well, that... Watching someone play Eco, I think, isn't the same as playing it. And I think his games really take advantage of, like, the interactivity that really defines games more than any others I can think of. So for me, the proof of it's really going to be in the experience of playing it. I would sort of agree where watching someone do that act. It's like, oh, I've sort of seen puzzles a bit like this in Eco, mm-hmm. but really what is the experience going to be of playing them? At that point of the game, what is your relationship with the griffin bird dog creature? Yeah. Uh, well, also, it was just well, I've the, seen this stuff in the previous trailers yeah. uh, yeah. in that, like, you know, oh, I'm, he's feeding barrels to the the, to the griffin or their uh, griffin takes this big jump and then catches him like that's all stuff that's been shown previously it, yeah, except shown. now we've, we've seen it in real time yeah, yeah that's well, true I think that's it's, true. Been, it's been shown but to me it's like the experience of doing that like that even that moment of having him catch you like if I had never seen that beforehand I think that would be an amazing moment in the game like yeah. so that's like a, really a lot of it that has to come across in, in experiencing it which I'm hoping it, it has a lot of those sorts of moments that we don't I'm sort of probably going to go in a blackout of it now because I don't really need to see any more that was plenty <laughs> for me, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Jeremy, yeah. do you care about the Last Guardian? I mean, I'm I'm interested in it, but at the same time, I wasn't really impressed at all with the mm. E3 demo. It just felt like, you know, it's reiterating Eco, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, so much has built on Eco uh, in the past 15 years that I I guess you know. I I wonder how he's going to escape his own legacy. Yeah, that's um, going to be hard. I and mean, I, I feel like there there must be more to the game than what they showed. You know, like it's eco, but with the luck dragon from the Neverending <laughs> Story. Yeah. We've like, known that. We've okay, done. so yeah, that's that's not too surprising. But what goes beyond that? Like what? New ideas, what new mechanics, what new experiences lie in store? If it's just eco, except with with a griffin, then honestly, that's not exciting to me. But I, I'm putting some faith there. Yeah, me too. There's going to be much more to this than than meets it, the eye so far. For how much it, of an insane perfectionist he is, I feel like he wouldn't let that happen. Sorry, Nick. I was going to say, I think even if it is, if it is just that, which is sort of maybe maybe for us who are like fans of the work, maybe that's the worst case scenario is that it is just you know eco with the Griffin. Um, but I think given that most gamers these days, uh, especially like younger folks, wouldn't have played either of his previous games, like even if it is just that, I'll be glad to have that experience out there in that way. Me too. Um, but hopefully it is, like we were all saying, it hopefully it goes a bit deeper. It does build on the, the games that have been influenced by his games, conversely. Yeah, and I feel bad when I expect <laughs> um, someone to basically hit a home run every single time and change the world every single time. Like, that's that's not fair. How many How many game developers have radically invented new kinds of video games that many times, more than once. Maybe Shigeru Miyamoto, but but who else? Like, is that really something you can expect of someone? Like, let them have their good idea and explore it. So intellectually, like, I realize I should feel that way, but emotionally, I still want something more from, from The Last Guardian than just Eco with a Griffin. Well, we have to wrap up in a second here, but I do want to say even if it does come uh, fall under expectations or below expectations, rather, I'll be happy that it is out there and he can move on with his life. Like, as I said, we were robbed for 10 years of his works, and I want to see what he can do now that he's in his 40s and his 50s, etc. I want to see what he can do with this new studio that he formed to basically finish the game, right? (laughs) So, yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining me, Nick and Michael. Jeremy, you're stuck here, so I'm not going to thank you at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, I I came here and had the 
Shadow of the Colossus spoiled for me, man. I know. Mm. Well, now you can play it and uh, not, not be surprised, not at, be surprised all. at all. Yay. But you should still play it because it's worth playing should, yes. regardless. And I, I will say to all of you guys, destination. please buy the HD collection for the PS3. It's fantastic. Ueda worked with the team who ported it, and it is great, and it's still super playable. And if we didn't convince you to play these games... What is uh, listen to this podcast again? I've never heard so much positivity on one episode of Retronauts. I don't think, at least uh, in terms of what People I'm going to be so mad about that. I know, like we want you to complain. You can blame me. Okay, <laughs> it's Nick's fault. Yep. He likes the game so much he wrote the book on it. Well, he will be. So, in closing, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitch.tv, YouTube, and several other things as Retronauts. Uh, be sure to go to our blog, Retronauts.com, for great extra stuff, and go to USGamer.net. If you go there, you're going to read all the great stuff that Jeremy and me and Kat and Mike and Jazz write. You also see great detailed posts where every episode of this podcast, every time we put up a post, there's links to music that we put in here, links that we talk about, things like that. So please come into the US Gamer fold and be with us forever. <laughs> that sounds that sounds mysterious, doesn't mm. it? And also we are on Patreon, so go to patreon.com slash retronauts and give us a dollar a month and we'll get early podcasts and you'll help us uh, make the show because we don't make money from it and it costs money to make and that's just the business of podcasting. And uh, as always, please keep the reviews coming uh, via iTunes Music Store. They really help. Even just saying a few words can help us, uh, you know, rise through the ranks and defeat Rooster Teeth in the great podcast wars of 2015. <laughs> so uh, I'll say my stuff last because I'm, I'm out of breath and it's really hot in here if you couldn't tell. So uh, Michael, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at vidigameapocalypse.com where I post my uh, silly, filthy, stupid podcast every week. Uh, and you can also see some of my more recent work at uh, blog.ub.com. Nick, how about you? Buy my book. Buy my book. No, uh, can I just put that clip in here for like three minutes? Please do. Okay. Um, bossfightbooks.com uh, is where you can go and pre-order it if you like. Uh, it should be out by the end of the year. Uh, I'm still working on it now. Um... And you can find me at uh, N. Sutner on Twitter. It's probably the best place. Cool. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, you can find me on usgamer.net. You can find me at gameboyworld.com and on Twitter as GameSpite. Oh, and on YouTube as Toasty Frog. Hooray. Awesome. So as for me, you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. As I said before, I also write for US Gamer, and I write for Something Awful as well. And I'm also doing another podcast for the Laser Time Network, which Michael is part of. Yeah. It's oh, called... at Wikiparas, by oh, the way, got on it. Twitter. So go there, too. <laughs> but I'm also doing another podcast called Talking Simpsons, in which we do an episode per, per Simpsons episode. So we're doing the first season what? now, and it's a Laser Time Network Patreon exclusive. I believe it will cost you five bucks a month to access that and a bunch of other great stuff from Laser Time. And there our friends and I like to promote them as well but you can hear a podcast from me if you're afraid of these new people you can just I'll, I'll help break you into the laser time world it's not that scary right? we Michael? are pretty terrifying I mean yeah there, there is the ritualistic abuse that yes. you inflict on any guest that comes over but <laughs> you know those scars heal over time exactly yeah. exactly in closing thanks again for joining us we'll be back next week with a mini episode have a good time guys